is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are talking about the 2020 Thrasher piece from Havoc 5. <laughs> I feel like you've used Thrasher piece before. <laughs> you know, I almost didn't because I was going to c- coin a different term for it this time around, but we'll talk about that when we get it because I don't, oh. I, I think these guys go beyond the thrash classification but we'll, we'll we'll get into that a little bit later but yeah i actually wondered today how many times have i used the raster piece and at least if anybody has before, a count of yeah. those episodes where i have said an album was a thrasher piece i'd like to know what albums i have given that label because i like to think of it as the early days of the nintendo you know quality seal where there's not that many that have it um but maybe i'm overusing it Right, give it a year and then suddenly every game's got it. The question is, have you said it more or less times than I've called something seminal? (laughs) (laughs) We should have a scorecard. That would be awesome. Oh. I'm sure someone has, will will go back and and keep that count there. But uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, But anyway, yes. So we'll get to that later. Uh, So let's talk about the last episode, and that was, of course, the Testament episode. Um, Oh, since then, I should say we have. We've had one new patron, Kenton Davison, who sent us a really lovely message. He's a trucker, uh, which means he's classified as a key worker during, you know, this whole pandemic business. Um, and he said, I mean, he said a lot of things and they were very, very kind. Thank you, Kenton. But one of the things he said was that this podcast is one of the things that's been keeping him sane while he's working, which is awesome and humbling. So, yeah, thank you a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's anytime a story like that sort of comes to us. It's amazing. And knowing how important music is to us. And I think to everybody that listens to the show and is part of this community, like hearing those stories about how the podcast can actually be, you know, somewhat uh, therapeutic as well is super humbling and just makes me even more excited about, you know, continuing to do the show. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and yeah, as I say, last episode was the Testament episode, uh, very popular, lots of talk about it on the Facebook group and what have you. And, uh, amazingly, I don't have any follow-up about that episode. I don't think I'm said anything horribly wrong. Oh, no, nah, man, you nailed it. You killed it. You crushed it. Um, I normally do, but yeah, no, not on that episode. And maybe that's just because as was clear in the episode, you know, you and I have been Testament fans for so long that it's all just kind of. Uh, you know, it, it's all gone into us via osmosis. Yeah, that was a really fun episode to do. And, and uh, anyone who is a longtime listener knows that that was probably the most demanded episode of the last, like, I mean, if we've been doing this for five years, then th- at least three and a half years, when is the Testament episode coming? So there oh, was a I lot of discussion longer. about it. I, I think pretty much as soon as we covered the big four, like from the moment that we made it clear that we'd done the big four, people were saying, okay, so now what about Testament? Yeah, now you're right about that. Uh, a couple comments from the Facebook page here. Uh, Christopher said, fun episode. My biggest problem with early Testament is the drums. They sound so elementary compared to what Lombardo, Bostaff, and Hoagland laid down uh, from the gathering to now. I wasn't a Testament fan back in the earlier days, so I, do, I know it's not fair to compare late 80s thrash drumming to 2000s thrash drumming. Save that, put a pin in that for our discussion later today. <laughs> um, but I cannot listen to early Testament records without thinking, damn, this would be so much better if the drums kicked more ass. 
Would it though? Okay, so this is, I mean, this ties into a few comments that we had around the episode that I did want to bring up. And that's people saying like, oh, well, you know, a few people said, it just kind of sounds like standard thrash to me, nothing special at all. And I'm like, yeah, but it's 30 years old. You know, you've got to listen to these things in the context of when they came totally. out. Totally, uh, And I think that includes things like the drumming. We've talked about this before, the, the, the bass level of ability of any metal musician these days, but particularly drummers is insane now compared to what it was in the late 80s. Uh, You know, even the most run-of-the-mill metal drummer now could absolutely play the pants off of anybody, even Lombardo, Uh, you know, back in the late 80s. It's just, you you can't make that comparison. Now, Testament's early drumming wasn't, we mentioned this on the episode, you know, it wasn't a mile a minute. You know, it wasn't mega right. fast stuff, but that was kind of by design. The music wasn't meant to be what would at the time have been classified as death metal, really, to go that fast. Well, and I would even take it a step further and say that, especially for early albums of any band and for bands that were help basically build the sound of this genre of music, there's that element of like still finding your sound, right? And still putting mm. it together and still honing, you know, what you're doing. And again, I think we'll talk about that today. I mean, this this is uh, Havoc's fifth album that we're going to talk about today. And so there's always that element for it, for me as well, when I listen to stuff like that, is not only, yes, of the time that it was created, um, but also of the timeline of the band, right? And where yeah. they would get to. Because as he mentioned in this post, I mean, you listen to later Testament, and what you would probably consider their their sort of peak sound, right? And you that evolves, and so you know that, that I think that's part of it for me too. Yeah, agreed. Uh, JD said, "Good episode." Now for some rambling, and I, and he did ramble, so I'm going to pick out a few. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. He said, "I'm a is that JD Savari?" Yes. Yeah. Just for people's context, JD is a guy I know. He's a video games writer. Uh, like me so he's a guy i know through that field but he is also he's finnish and he is also a huge metal fan so yes that explains the the rambling <laughs> well he said i'm a relic of the past but have never listened to a full testament album i probably would have heard them on headbangers ball back in the day that's how we know he's in our age group uh but i have no recollection of it he said now allow me to destroy any potential credibility by saying that if someone had played this album to me now in 2020 while telling me it was a compilation of some unreleased Metallica tracks that didn't make the cut for their early albums, I would have believed them. No questions <laughs> asked. Uh, my only clues to the contrary would have been the production is a bit sloppy, and man, James is suddenly singing a lot better on these. <laughs> so so I think he man- he probably managed to ruffle the feathers of three or four groups yeah. of fans in that, in that one statement there. Uh, he said, I was never a thrash guy. As far as thrash went, I was a Metallica guy because that's the band everyone who was into metal listened to back then. It was just heavy metal. I don't know. I didn't know what the hell thrash even was. Uh, he said, aside from them, out of the big eight, I only listened to some Megadeth albums and a few Anthrax tracks here and there. Testament just never ended up in my CD player, possibly because I was too busy listening to Iron Maiden, who were and remain my favorite metal group. He said, with that said... Uh, I find the New Order an enjoyable album with Disciples of the Watch uh, and The Preacher being the standouts for me. I cannot recall any of the riffs, though, even after three listens. Uh, yeah. And he 
He said, I also kind of like the finisher. Are you there, Cthulhu? It's me, Margaret. (laughs) (laughs) Even Even if just for the chuckle it inspires as it feels incredibly derivative of the finisher to ride the lightning. So I'll just stop there, and I just uh, there's some good stuff to unpack there. But this, um, I've been thinking about this a lot today too. This this Havoc album has really made me think about a lot of different things, um, which is one of the reasons that I love it. But this whole idea of like derivative, right? What it, are are things influenced? Are they derivative? Are they um, are they a lesser than? You know, because I think in a lot of people's heads, the big four are even, I think they're considered the best by a lot of fans just because of the nature of the fact that they're the big four. Mm. When, of course, when you unpack it a little bit more, you know that a lot of it had to do like when record deals came out and who got their record deal first and, you know, who who got the band together at this time and stuff like that. And so... Well, and it's also confusing favorite with best. I mean, that's the thing. There's, there's, totally, it's, dude. You can, yes. Success is something that you can quantify. Best, not so much. Right, and they often get uh, conflated, right? And so, um, yeah. I mean, to say Testament is derivative of Metallica, I don't... I, I think you can say that everybody at that point in time was influenced by Metallica. I just watched watched a uh, documentary on Amazon the other day called Get Thrashed. And one of the producers of it was the original drummer from Overkill. And it focused a lot on the San Francisco scene, although it did touch on the uh, on the UK scene and also on uh, the New York scene and stuff like that. But the more that you kind of dig into that era, it's like they were all influenced by each other, right? I mean, look at the fact yeah, that Metallica totally. pulled uh, Kirk Hammett out of Exodus into Metallica. Um, and then, of course, you look at Mustaine spinning off into Megadeth and what what that band influenced and stuff like that. Kerry King uh, spent a little bit of time in Megadeth and, and stuff like that. And so it's just... Uh, when you get a to, scene that is so incestuous like that, yes, you know, where dude, all and the then bands it just kind of play- shakes out. Yeah, they're all playing the same gigs. They're on the same bill. They're in the same scene. They're playing at the same places. They're watching each other. That's the other thing. They're all fans of each other. So they all go to each other's gigs, even if they're not performing. You know, that's how you get a scene. That's what a scene is. And that's why when you get scenes like that, you end up with bands who do sound a little bit like each other. It's, It's inevitable, unavoidable, and not necessarily a bad thing. No, especially when the bands are around long enough to build their own sound, right? Because they may all start with, and I think that's with any sort of genre, you sort of start with the building blocks of that particular sound or that particular uh, type of music. And then the bands that stick around long enough, they're able to build on that foundation and create something of their own and add to that sort of tapestry moving forward. And so Testament without a doubt is, 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 uh, you know, one of those bands, but that's interesting, right? Especially, but I could totally see if you're not super familiar with that era, haven't listened to all those albums, didn't grow up with those albums, didn't grow up listening to those albums that, yeah, it's like you said, um, you could put those albums on nowadays and at face value, somebody could be like, well, it doesn't feel that fast and it doesn't feel that heavy and the drums don't feel that intricate. And, um, but yeah, at the time, I mean, he mentions Dave Lombardo, the first time I heard Dave Lombardo play drums, I I had never heard anything like like I literally thought that was the fastest, greatest, most 
insane and otherworldly drumming that I had ever heard. Yep. Like well, for I think so everybody long. did. I mean, I mean, even though I love, I would say my favorite drummer of that time would, would be Gar. But in terms of like the, the beast of them all, to me, it was Dave Lombardo. Like he was, he was even now, like when Dave Lombardo joined suicidal tendencies, I was like, holy shit, Dave Lombardo is playing with suicidal now. Like that's insane. So yeah. And it just, it just goes back to the context of the time that you're listening to it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that reminds me actually of when, what was it? Uh, Demanufacture, the Fear Factory album, Demanufacture came out. Uh, and who was drumming for them? And Danny Herrera, I think. Oh, was it? Oh, I think it was Danny. Oh, God. Anyway, whoever it was, you listen to that album and especially the first few tracks. And I remember people that being like a lot of rumors swirling around about like, oh, this is a drum machine. Like, this isn't actually a, a real guy playing, you know, it may be a real guy live, but on the record, this is a drum machine because it's too precise. It's too fast. It's too, you know, you listen to the double kick on that album and it, it is mad. It is like, you know, hyper fast, it, it consistent click track level double kick. But of course, now we know, no, actually that's, you know, you can do that. And there's loads of drummers who can do that. It's just, again, oh, I mean, you at look the at time, Holman, right? Yeah, right. At the time. Nobody else was doing that. And so, yeah, again, people, like I say, people genuinely thought, like, oh, this is a drum machine. He was actually using triggers, I mean, which didn't help. So he was playing, but the sounds were triggered to get a consistency and that sort of machine-like sound. But he was playing. Um, And yeah, it's, as you say, things evolve, you know, things move on. Um, And I'm sure people had... I mean, I don't know whether anybody would have ever accused Lombardo of of using a drum machine, for example, in early Slayer stuff. But I remember the same thing that everybody was just like, "How? How do you play this? How do you play this fast? How how can any human do this?" And of course, like I say now, you know, an eleven year old kid learning to play metal can probably play along to Slayer albums. That's just the way things go. Well, and, and for Lombardo, right? I mean, the thing that I, I feel like really separate, I mean, the speed was overwhelming when you first heard him. But the other thing was that he was all over the kit. And yeah, that's where you were like, what? Like, what? Because I feel like uh, Charlie Bonante from Anthrax, I appreciate him more now than I did way back in the day. And I think it's because as he continued to grow and evolve, like he got all over the kit and he, I mean, you listen to an album like, um, we've come for you all. The last one that John Bush did with them. My God, it's a drum clinic from Benante, like just a freaking drum clinic from Benante. And then you go back and listen to, and you could hear it in the earlier stuff. And I just, I didn't appreciate it as much back then, but it didn't feel initially as all over the kit as like when i heard lombardo i was like how can this guy play the bass drum that fast but then also is he an octopus and <laughs> you know what i mean like it just like how is that even happening yeah. and so uh that and then it sort of pushes everybody right to to figure out how to incorporate bits and pieces of that it's it's just uh it, and that's why it's fascinating to go back and listen to like an early testament album because you really are it's almost like you're reading the story as it's being written on the page of this genre of music, like really still crystallizing, which is just super cool. Yeah. Well, and you know, once somebody realizes something is possible, then everybody else scrambles to copy it. And Mm -hmm. that becomes the new baseline. You know, again, look at things like the speed of, 
uh, not just drumming, but like the speed of rhythm playing that you got from bands like Metallica and Megadeth, which at the time were blistering fast. Uh, and then, you know, three years later, every band was playing at that speed. It yep. wasn't that it hadn't been possible before. It was that nobody had done it. Well, and, and the cool thing is, like, in watching that uh, Get Thrashed documentary, like, you hear contemporaries who, back to what you were saying, you know, like, they're all playing in the same clubs and they're all doing stuff like that, talking about each other, like, man, I had never seen anything like that. Or, man, when we heard this band play, it was, holy shit, we have to figure out have to how to this. incorporate yeah, that, you exactly. know, and that kind of stuff. And so it is, uh, it, it's a fascinating. Um couple more reactions here. David said, I am one of the people who has been begging for a Testament episode. Thank you. In all capital letters, he said, thank you. <laughs> uh, he said, I loved this episode so much, and I love this album. The first Testament album I got was Demonic, which as a Sepultura, Pantera, and Machine Head-loving teenager totally blew me away. I immediately went out and looked for more by them. At the time, vinyl was actually a really cheap way to get music because it was considered basically a dead medium. So I was in the habit of uh, trawling record shop vinyl collections and found a promo pressing of this album, which doesn't have the extra stuff on. No extra little in- instrumentals, no Aerosmith cover. Oh, wow. I didn't even know about that stuff until I revisited the album via streaming for the homework for the episode. Uh, he said that Aerosmith song, which actually happens to be one of my favorite Aerosmith songs, was certainly a surprise. Anyway, I don't have a lot to say, really. I agree with everything everyone has said about the production, and I really enjoyed listening to Anthony and Brian talking about why this album is fantastic anyway. Seriously, this is one of my favorite episodes so far, and I've been listening since the beginning. Yay, thank you. Uh, Very cool. Thanks for that, David. Uh, Art said, love this album, love this band. I'm so happy that they've finally been covered on the show. Their whole discography is so varied and amazing. They're so underrated, and I've seen them live three times, and every time was more unique and amazing. I will see them live every time because they always put on a blistering show, Day of Reckoning is the weakest regular song on the album, and the one that sounds the most like Metallica musically. I can also imagine Hetfield singing this one as well. Yeah, I'll go uh, on with that. Let's see. Uh, ba, 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 ba. Well, apart from the Aerosmith song. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, we were talking about that, the band in the movie, uh, and you had said on the Patreon, uh, Darren had pointed out that the band in the movie that you were trying to remember could be the movie Triple X, which featured Ramstein in an early scene. Yeah, and uh, it, it's entirely possible that it could be that. I thought the movie I was thinking of was older than Triple X, but then mind you, Triple X is not a new movie anymore, is it? So <laughs> no, that's one of those, oh, I'm old moments, <laughs> yeah. right? Where you're like, man, Triple X, that came out like five years ago, right? Uh, no, it's no, probably like no. 15 <laughs> years old at least. And you're like, Jesus. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, you know, my old man's memory is completely fading me, but thank you to everyone who tried to jog my memory by naming metal bands who'd performed in, uh, in movies. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Uh, Kenneth said, this is the first TO that I haven't been able to get through for a long time. Nothing against you two. The chat is still good, but I just can't hear what you're hearing with Testament. I don't get them at all. I've been checking them out uh, on and off since the 90s, but they never clicked with me. As you mentioned, the shitty production really doesn't help, but and, uh, and Justice is terribly produced, but it still has the songs and Testament doesn't. Uh, the constant conversation about why there isn't a big five with Testament in it, to me, is as simple as they're not good enough. And this uh, also ran, and so basically he was saying like that, that kind of played true as he listened to this episode. Um, 
There's nothing here that comes close to something like Overkill's Years of Decay, let alone Master of Puppets or Rain and Blood. I might write this off as having no time for thrash anymore, but I've been on a huge classic Anthrax and Slayer kick, which has been great fun, where this felt like I was dragging myself through this. And the album uh, CJ recommended to me a few months ago, but the different uh, different music for different folks, I guess. So, uh, you know, basically, yeah. this didn't resonate with him. He does not get the um, Testament love as someone who many people think should be, at the very least, in the big five, if not even the big four. Yeah, but I mean, as he said, it's absolutely fair. Different music for different folks. You know, famously, uh, there are bands that you and I just can't get along with that the other likes. And yeah, that's, you know, that's just the way things are. Um, So yeah, you know, sorry that it doesn't work for you uh, because, but I mean, you know, also let's be honest, not alone, because as we discussed in the episode, one of the reasons that Testament aren't considered part of a big five is that they just weren't as successful as the big four. Um, And so, you know, is that, because not enough people did like them, you know, too uh, too many other people felt the same way. Or as you said, is it just down to timing and when they sign the record deals and stuff? Who knows? Um, but yeah, you know, some people just aren't into some things. Not every record is for every person and that's okay. Uh, let's see. I'm just scrolling through. A lot of this didn't click with me, which is kind of surprising too. That's why I love looking at the, at the conversations that happen afterwards. Um, okay. Uh, Luis said, great episode, gentlemen. I agree with Brian and any of their first four albums could have been covered. I enjoy their late 90s albums, but maybe they wouldn't turn into a nice two-hour talk so easily. He said, I love uh, Testament's consistency despite their many lineup changes. They never released an unquestionable classic like Master of Puppets or Rain and Blood, but also never made anything like Saint Anger. You can find at least a couple of great tracks in any of their albums. That is a... Very interesting point. And maybe to go back to what you were just saying, Anthony, about, uh, you know, why, like why they weren't in the in the big four or even the big five um, or why that's even debatable. Right. There are a lot of bands that we grew up loving that just are they have this inconsistency about them where there is no perfect album yeah. like they did. Like, I think. All of the big four, you could look to an album or even multiple albums where you'd be like, right, but at least album, one where you go, yeah, that's the perfect album. That's it's got perfect, no, right? Or that's no the filler. peak. That's their peak sound. Yeah. Or, um, but you know, this idea that if there's if they got eight to ten songs on an album, there's five or six great ones and a few clunkers on the album, and bands put an entire um, career together like that and don't have that one perfect album. Yeah, and I'm trying to rack my head and think if Testament, if I would put Testament in that category, I well, I think we did on the episode. We talked about this on the episode. They've never had there is no Testament album that doesn't have at least one or two dodgy tracks on it, unfortunately. And there are also some albums that have more than one or two dodgy tracks, but at the same time, there are no albums that don't have at least one or two really great tracks on it, which is one of the reasons why I think they have continued to be you know, fan favorites throughout the years. They've never put out a completely horrible album, but they've also, yeah, never put out a brilliant, you know, peak, uh, no yeah. bad tracks, perfect album. It's uh, it's a real shame. But then that's most bands. That is most bands, right? And that's how you get to like a big four as opposed to a big, 
you know, dozen or 20 or 30 yeah. or, or whatever, right? Is, is, is that the thing that sort of separates them? I mean, obviously the success, to go back to what you mentioned earlier, but even if you look at the big four, like from a success standpoint, like as you, you know, there's Metallica and then there's everybody else when it comes to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, to the know, point success. where Anthrax almost split up in the mid 90s. I mean, you know, because they were so commercially unsuccessful, but they had had that peak in the 80s and they had produced albums i mean and here we get into personal taste again albums that i actually don't particularly i'm not especially bothered about and don't think are perfect albums but the general consensus is that an album like among the living uh or um what's the other one they did that's people always cite anyway the point is you know they have at least well, one and, and probably two albums that are generally regarded as oh this is a perfect early thrash album yeah, I would say among the living, and um, if not spreading the disease, then uh, spreading the disease—that's the one I was trying to think of. Yeah, which is why it's funny because it, Kenneth was saying, you know, he's been on an early Anthrax kick. I also have been on an early Anthrax kick lately, and I just listened to Spreading the Disease the other day, and uh, because I've been going back and appreciating Charlie's drumming in those early albums more, which is one of the kicks that this Havoc album. Mm. Um, sort of got me going back often and um but i mean it, the other thing too is like you love what you love like i love state of euphoria from anthrax i think that is arguably one of their best albums they hate that album that was an album that they were rushing through because they needed to get an album out and they don't look back on that album super favorably as a band and uh have said a lot of disparaging things over over the years of it it would be of the belladonna era it might be the first one i pick yeah well and you know as we did on the episode on the show you know i think stomp 442 is a perfect album but anthrax themselves you know mostly do not agree <laughs> so no it's funny though because i I feel like I, we've come for you all is is a masterpiece of the john bush era but you know honestly there are, this is again i don't think there was a bad album in the john bush era some were better than others uh but i don't think any of them you know even volume eight the threat is real. That's got some totally green tracks on it. You know, it's yep, uh, totally agree. And then and obviously if you haven't heard, sorry, uh, I don't know if you, if you have the uh, greater of two evils album, I don't even think you can, I don't know if it's streaming or not. I got to find out, but it's, it, it's like they don't talk about it anymore or it was done. I think right after they, uh, they did, we've come for you all. And they basically recorded live in studio in front of a group of people over the course of like a few days or something like that, these live versions of Belladonna era tracks sung by oh, John Bush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I haven't got it, but I have heard it. Yeah, dude, that album. I know someone's posted it up on YouTube. So I, if you haven't heard John Bush sing those early songs on that album, like the freaking power that he sings those songs with, I, it, it is one of my. I don't know if you could call it a live album because it was like recorded live in studio, but. uh it's amazing. It is amazing. It's it's such a sort of nice um, nod to what he brought to that band and the justice that he did to their early songs. It's really, really great. So, no, I don't think you can call that live because if you do, then you have to call Black Sabbath's first album live as well, <laughs> or you know, yeah, half of okay. the Beatles' early albums live. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> um, yeah. So great conversation as always on the Facebook page, and uh, if you haven't joined us over there and you are on facebook please do please come over and and be a part of the discussion great discussion always new music being uh introduced in there a lot of bands that i've found through people putting albums in and mentions up there so 
uh, great stuff, great community over there. Yeah, absolutely is. And we say this every episode, but it's such a great, friendly, non hateful community uh and you know i know that might sound like an odd thing to say but especially at this time of history (laughs) you know having an oasis where everybody is just chill about whether or not somebody else likes something is actually pretty fucking rare on the internet let's be honest um i mean on that note let's just quickly say i don't want to you know sort of get controversial or anything but as we record this there are now what less than a month until the uh, US elections. And let's just urge everybody to get out and vote. Go and check that you're registered to vote. If you are not and you are able to, then do so. Go and register and then vote. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but go and exercise your right to vote because that's how it works. And you can complain and say, oh, they're all the same, blah, 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 but they're really not, you know, and you know they're not. Uh, And the only way. You know, you have two instruments in this society in which we live to bring about change, your money and your vote. And you may not like that, but it's the truth. Those are the only ways in which you can make a material difference to the world in which you live, uh, assuming you live in, you know, a sort of modern, civilised, Western-style democracy. Um, So, yeah, don't squander it. Get out there and vote. Yeah, I mean, that that is perfectly said. And even if you think you are registered to vote, double-check. Oh, yeah. Um, Because, you know, you, you... there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of chicanery going on right now, so make sure that you are registered. Exercise your right to vote, and you know you said it perfectly, Anthony. But uh, this election, I don't think the importance of it can be overstated. And yeah. you only, you only have to look you around really you yeah. every day. Yeah. Uh, and but in the meantime, uh, like I say, yeah. let's not get too deep into policies but in the meantime if you want to join in some chat about metal yes join us on facebook uh, at facebook.com slash groups slash thrashed out and uh, leave your politics at the door yeah because you got to come up for air right i mean that yeah. that's that's the thing it's like you like you said the oasis are even just coming up for air when you, because it's it, the the sort of cloud every everything that we're dealing with 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 covid with the you know you know the, the fires that are happening in California, like everything that's going on is just, uh, you know, the, the, um, well, you need an escape systemic from... racism. Like uh, there's yeah. just so much going on that it's like, you don't even realize I was talking to somebody from work and I, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole here, but we were just having a conversation the other day. And, you know, she was saying like, man, I just feel like I'm constantly like tired and like, I'm or I'm constantly like, there's just, there's just this, malaise you know uh, like in in and just getting motivated and we just kind of talked about like just think about what is happening around you like on every front and then think about the fact that we all just try to power through that right yeah it's like we, the, we, the we classic all. horse ebooks tweet everything happens so much yes totally do <laughs> it's like and yep. so yeah. um <laughs> you know to go back to what i said earlier like for me music is that oasis and I being able to disappear into an album for 35 or 45 or an hour or whatever is self-care for me. I go to bed every night. I go to bed listening to music every morning. Just about I wake up and put music on. And during the day I've got music. Like it is the thing that I keep um, that I know I need to do to uh, take care of myself is, is to keep that connection and to, to leverage that as one of my sort of coping mechanisms. So, um, yeah. yeah. And then, and then to be able to have this podcast to come in our community to come and 
have great discussions about music with. Like it is really uh, very necessary and very helpful. Absolutely. In general, but certainly in this time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many of us have, you know, I would say most of the people probably listening to this show by dint of being the sort of person who listens to this show, I'm going to guess, you know, most of the people out there have used and continue to use music as a way to escape from the world and as catharsis and as an outlet and as that oasis. And yeah, you just say, we all need it. I'm like you, I listen to music constantly all day long. If I'm not listening to a podcast, I'm listening to music. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's one of the things that keeps us sane or can anyway. Um, on that note, actually, I should also, uh, give the usual plug for the Patreon. Uh, remember, you know, this show is completely independent. We don't have sponsors. We're not part of a network. We don't run ads. We don't monetize your clicks or any of that shit. <laughs> we are supported <laughs> directly by you, the listener. Um, for which we are extremely grateful. And if you are not yet a supporter and you want to help us keep the show going, go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and make your pledge. All we ask is a dollar an episode. Really? Is that too much to ask? I don't think so. Uh, and yeah, join today. And you might want to do so now because we are about to start running the uh, listener poll for this volume, the listener choice for this volume. But I'll talk about that at the end of this episode. So what now? Now... <laughs> I guess. Now we move on to Havoc. Yeah, I guess we do move on to Havoc now. Uh, So Havoc is a Colorado area thrash band that started in 2004. First album called Burn, their first full album called Burn, was released in June of 2009. And of course, this album, 5V, uh, I don't know if some people are calling it V. I think I called it V when I first uh, when I first saw it. Makes sense, though. Their fifth album was released on May 1st, 2020. I actually had to check that because it feels like time doesn't exist anymore. So I had to double check because I think I initially put down that this album came out in 2019. It yeah. did not. It came out in May of 2020. Um, this year has been a hell of a decade, as they say. It is unbelievable, dude. Like, I literally second-guessed myself on that. I'm like, wait a second. Because <laughs> I've been saying it's, like, when, pretty much my album of the year at this point. And then I'm like, what? Is it this year or did it come out last year? No, it came out this year. Um, these guys have had a fair amount of lineup changes over the years. And actually, their original guitar player passed away in 2015. He had been out of the band for about five years um, when that happened. But they've... They've had a variety of lineup changes, and most of them, other than uh, that guitar change. So uh, Sean Chavez was the original guitar player who who passed in 2015. Reese Scruggs is the lead guitar player now, and he has been with the band since uh, since Sean left the band in 2010. And so Reese and David Sanchez, who is the lead singer and rhythm guitarist, he is the founder of the band. And he and Reese are the two longest tenured members the majority of the changes that have happened in the lineup over the years are bass player changes, mm. um, which is very interesting when you think about this particular album, because it is, it is uh, Brandon Bruce's first album with Havoc is this particular album. And uh, Pete Weber has been on drums since 2010. So the most of the bands 2010 was when for, they more or less solidified apart from the yeah, bass, right. basically. Yeah. Yeah. So these guys have been together for this trio has been together for pretty much a decade. And then they've, they've had a a few bass players come in and out over that particular time. And man, uh, when you go back and listen to this band 
in their early days. Because one of the first comments that I saw on Facebook in prep for this album, you know, as people were kind of listening to it for the first time, is the Metallica comparison of uh, of sound, right? And this, which and that's is why really, think, yeah. I mean, you know, how could you not make that comparison? Right, and and that's where I it made me think about. Uh, I'm sure there will folk, there are folks that would say derivative uh, on here, but I would argue against that as we kind of move forward. But in one of the interviews that David Sanchez has done, and he's generally the guy who gets interviewed for the band whenever they're being interviewed. And there's a lot of great interviews out there uh, about this album. But I think there was one where he talked about when they first founded the band, they were basically playing Metallica songs. Like that's how they, that's how they started putting together. Oh, he said here, I started the band when I was 15 with a drummer that I went to high school with. I played the guitar and we both knew a bunch of Metallica songs. So we got together and jammed and played Metallica songs for fun and eventually started writing songs. Um, you know, because they wanted to sort of do their own stuff. So it, you know, clearly how could you not be influenced by Metallica if you are starting a thrash band, right? No matter what era you're starting a thrash band in, but you know, clearly right from the get go, that was what brought the early version of this band together. Well, and that's how every band starts. Every band starts as a bunch of friends or not every band, but you know, the vast majority, especially of rock bands starts as a bunch of friends get together and play covers of their favorite songs. I did it. 99% of other bands have done it. It's how you get started. And then you start writing your own songs. And a lot of the time, those bands, you know, you're playing covers of those bands because you love those bands. So naturally, when you come to write your own stuff, a lot of bands wind up writing stuff that does sound a bit like the music that they were playing covers of. It's just, it's completely natural. Chris, we used to, you know, one of my first bands, we basically played Ministry and Sisters of Mercy covers all day long. Uh-huh. <laughs> and unsurprisingly when we wrote our own stuff that's kind of what we sounded like a cross between you know um well and it's yeah, the same with writing with too right i mean when you th- when you think about it like when you when you first start uh yeah totally writing if you're a fiction writer or whatever like you're looking at the people you grew up reading or the stories that really resonated with you and you're deconstructing that and trying to kind of do your own version of that and in the early days a lot of it like I feel like you wear your influences on your sleeve the most in your early work, right? Like it's so easy to see those influences in your early work. And then you get a little more elegant in your nods and how you weave things in kind of as you move forward. But for me, that's definitely how it was. Like my early stuff is absolutely like you can be like, yep, that's this and that's this and that's this. Yeah. Yeah. But but some people will also have a greater influence on you, you know, throughout the years regardless like i you know i've joked before that i try not to read uh a william gibson book when i'm in the middle of writing my own stuff <laughs> because inevitably if i do it will wind up sound i will wind up sounding like gibson i can't help yep. it it's not deliberate it's not conscious it just happens and i actually kind of you know at the when i'm going through and revising a draft i deliberately try and look for like, oh, that that's a that's a Gibson phrase. I'd better change that. You do a you know? Gibson pass. Right, kind of, yeah. You know, because he's just been such an enormous influence on my work, even now. You know, and I'm 20 years, 25 years into this gig. Yeah. And uh and I still, you know, I have mostly developed my own style now, but I am still prone to that kind of thing. And I think it's the same with a band like this. 
Clearly, they have developed their own style. Clearly, they don't sound like Metallica clone, but that influence is still there. And not just Metallica. One of the things that I find really interesting about this album is that quite a few songs remind me of other bands, but not in a way, as you say, that sounds derivative, just in a kind of like, oh, I can hear the influence here of, and not just Metallica. Well, Well, actually, I'll save it until we get to the... Yeah, uh, I'm getting more excited now. Until we get as, to the songs, but talking. there are some interesting influences here, I think. So, and, and on that note, uh, yeah, so they talked about the early influences there. Uh, these guys are clearly, in my mind, uh, building on that, but have made it their own. And I think this album in particular is really where you... This is kind of, they're right where they should be trajectory wise. Like, I feel like this is their latest album and to me, peak sound for them, Yeah, like peak sound. It will be interesting to see if like, this is their peak sound as we sort of speak about it right now. But if you look at the sort of progression and evolution from before, there's things that led to this album where this album is like the perfect distillation of like what they've built uh, to this point, at least in my, uh, in my opinion about that. What I love about this band is you go to their website and this is how they list their lineup. Uh, Reese Allen Shru- uh, Scruggs is lead shred. <laughs> Pete, Pete Weber is lead drums. David Sanchez, lead riffs, lead vocals. Brandon Bruce, lead bass, backing vocals. <laughs> and what I love about this band is that's actually literally true. If I could say one thing about this band is that they treat each instrument as the as a lead in the sense that it is given its proper respect and it is treated as an equal in the sense of what it can contribute to a song. And I think that's one of the things that separates this band from I think of the newer thrash bands, everyone else out there is their approach from that standpoint of this idea that it is like all of these things can stand on their own. Let's make them work together, but bounce off of one another in a way that does gives each instrument its respect. Uh, And I just love that about this because what it does is it creates this layer effect that you can go and listen to this album over and over and over and over again just for one of those instruments and get something out of this album every single time. That is... Yeah, go ahead. That's really funny that you say that because I saw an interview with Sanchez talking to, uh, you know, some reviewer somewhere um, where he said that that was deliberate, that he very, very specifically wanted this to be an album where you could listen to it over and over again and spot different things in the mix every time, because there is complexity going on, you know, and there are layers of uh, instruments and double tracking and what have you. Yeah. And and to go back to like what, as you mentioned, there's a lot of bands that we can talk about that are, there are nods to, or or little bits of influence from, or uh, a reminiscent phrasing of, or something like that with this band, which I think is, so fascinating, but they, they've hooked me in a way that I haven't been hooked since Megadeth in the sense that 
there was what drew me to Megadeth was this, you know, the world's state of the art speed metal band. And there was an interview with Havoc where the title of the interview, and I thought I saved it, but maybe I didn't. Oh, Progression at the Speed of Thrash was the name of this <laughs> uh, particular thing. And what I had initially written for a note when I first started taking notes on this album is like they they're bringing back the world state of the art speed metal band. Like they're, they're going back to what I loved about Megadeth in its earliest days was the uh, heaviness and speed and technicality all working together in this beautiful way that creates these layers of complexity that makes me want to continue to go back and listen and dissect and uh, focus on particular parts in this particular listen. And so it, when you get an album like that, that you can really sink your teeth into, it's just a joy to continue to go back and sort of listen to that. And that's, that's kind of where I see Havoc's sound right now is they have really, they've really created that, um, at least to my ear where there's so much to dig into there that, um, every time I listen to a song, I can listen for something different and get a lot out of it. And I find that really satisfying as a listener. I would argue that they have a lot more respect for the song than Megadeth, uh, which is one of the reasons why I certainly would listen to this over a Megadeth album. But I can see where you're coming from. I absolutely understand what you're saying, because they are. And again, this is something that I've seen Sanchez talk about. They are absolutely, clearly, technically proficient. You know, you could even call them virtuosos. Like everybody in this band is clearly extremely talented on their instruments. And yet it doesn't get in the way of writing songs. Um, You know, one of the things I like about this album, for example, is that the solos are all, they feel composed. You know, they feel like they have been written to match the song or to elevate the song uh, rather than improvised, which frankly for a modern metal band makes a nice change because whether or not they are, and I know some solos are definitely improvised, but whether or not they are, a lot of solos I hear these days And one of the reasons why I'm just not that into solos per se is because so many of them just feel like they've been improvised. Uh, Whereas on this album, they, or even the really fast shredding solos feel composed. They feel like they have been designed to fit with the song or as I say, even elevate the song in some cases. Um, And I feel like that is the case for all of the songs on this album. Again, I, you know, seeing interviews with Sanchez, he is clearly a very thoughtful songwriter and producer. I think he, the production on this album isn't really clear because uh, there's a guy called Mark Lewis who's referred to in interviews as the engineer and mixer. And Sanchez is really complimentary about his work and his talents and how he helped mm-hmm. them get the sound, but he never specifically says he was the producer. And I saw, I discovered that Sanchez himself appears to produce other bands himself from time to time. So, I assume that he self-produced this record and the other guy was basically the engineer. Um, but it's not really clear. Regardless, he is clearly someone who thinks a lot about, I mean, he even spoke in one interview about the amount of time he took over the track order on the album and how much uh-huh. thought and effort he put into it. And it, I think that really shows because this feels like an album in a way that, again, a lot of modern stuff I listen to, frankly, doesn't. I, I agree with everything that you just said, and I think it goes back to this attention to detail 
that rewards the listener, right? And so I, I think, um, you know, just their sound. So there was a, a interview with uh, Dark Art Conspiracy where he said, you know, we took a long time to refine the guitar tone and get the drums sounding right and really put extra time and attention to shoot on different microphones and cymbals, different drum heads, different guitars, different speakers, different amps and cabinets. He said, we went crazy with experimentation in making the record sound the way that it does. And then someone said, well, how do you, uh, how has the sound evolved since Conformicide? And he said, I think a big focus on this record was to make the two guitars and the bass kind of uh, played differently and work off of each other instead of all locking into the same piece of music. Um, he said, uh, and this is where he's talking about, you know, it makes it a more interesting listen. It increases the replay value of the music because on a first listen, you could totally absorb everything because there's these three different, you can't totally absorb everything because there's these three different things happening at once on top of drums and lyrics. He said, we expanded on that musically. We took full advantage of the fact that we have two guitar players on this record more than any other record. Um, I thought that was, uh, yeah. Well, that that speaks to those layers again, doesn't it? Yeah. And actually that reminds me of something else that he mentioned, that I saw him mention about the bassist, the new bassist, Brandon Bruce is apparently a multi-instrumentalist, like as well as bass. He also plays, you know, everything, guitar, keyboard, you name it. Um, and also even helped with vocal arrangements on this record. So it feels almost like, like you were saying, will this be their peak? I think, that might depend on whether the bassist sticks around. <laughs> because I, I am in it, agreement with you because I'm in like, more ways this is the one. lineup. Right. Well, in more ways than one, it feels like he's the cliff in this band now. You know, in the way that, remember, you know, in their early days, uh, Hetfield has talked about how Cliff basically taught him how to write proper songs, you know, like about some basic music theory and stuff that Hetfield had yep. no idea about. Now, I'm not saying that Sanchez doesn't know about those things. He clearly does. But he is clearly, from listening to him talk about this, he has clearly found in Bruce somebody who can help him elevate that vocal performance and can bring musical ideas that help improve songs and plays, again, like Cliff, proper bass lines rather than just root notes that follow the guitars and you know nothing wrong with that if you're in that sort of band but he clearly doesn't want this to be that sort of band and it feels like they've found their bassist yeah absolutely and um i mean bass bass lines that you just don't hear from you know from a lot of other bands out there but you're you're absolutely right and i think the biggest difference between conformicide their last album and this one for me is this is at the same time a more refined version of that sound and also a more complex version of that sound. A lot of the songs on Conformicide are too long. Right. And they, for the most part, avoid that pitfall here. There's maybe a couple songs where you could be like, ah, they could have shaved a minute off of that particular song, but they don't, by and large, this album does not overstay its welcome. They and don't I think overindulge. With, yes. And, I, and to your point, Anthony, which resonates with you more than something like a Megadeth, right? When you're talking about, like, it, it, it all kind of goes back to that core idea of, like, serving the song mm. and and what makes the most sense. And when you listen to a lot of the solos on this album, they're short. Yeah. Um, they're not long solos. They don't go on for a minute and a half. They're not, um, they don't take over the song. They are exactly the length that they need to be in order to not pull you out of uh, any given song. And then within that, the solos are amazing. 
They, and they so, feel like motorhead solos rather than Megadeth solos. Yes, 100%. Like, you don't, you're not coming to this album for the solos. Whereas, like, if I go to a Megadeth album, I'm coming for two things. I'm coming for the riffs because Mustaine is a, just a tremendous riff writer, but also for the solos and the trade off sort of thing. Yeah. For this band, I'm coming to this band for the complete sound because the complete sound that this band has put together to my ears right now in 2020 is better than any other thrash band out there that's doing it right now. Right. This you're, album, you're coming for the songs and you will get some face melting solos as part of, of that. You get all of it. But that's not what you're coming for. Yeah, I totally understand what you say. And and so to go back to the Facebook group, someone had said, um, you know, <laughs> this album is going to challenge, and I apologize, I don't have the page pulled up in front of you, but this album is going to challenge like different ways of saying like this is akin oh, yeah. to Metallica, right? <laughs> yeah. Like comparisons to Metallica. <laughs> Um, and my, so people were saying like, you know, different things in, in response to that. And my response to that was quote unquote improves upon the formula because I do honestly feel like, uh, you know what, let's, we'll talk about it when we get to the songs, but I do feel like if there's a song that you compare to a Havoc song on this album and you say, Oh, this sounds like this song from this band, it's better than that song from that band. They did a better version of it. Oh, wow. They did a better thing here than what you're doing right there. <laughs> you're going to get um, so many comments. <laughs> and, and I say that knowing that a lot of the songs on this album to me have a very Megadeth vibe to them. Um, yeah. Even though Metallica will be the will be the biggest uh, comparison. But if I had to say two bands that this band um, calls to mind immediately for me, it is Megadeth meets Suicidal Tendencies. Oh, because wow. Because... I find Reese's lead guitar playing to be very reminiscent of Rocky George from Suicidal Tendencies. Very, very, very reminiscent. The way he solos, just his, uh, I just like so much Rocky there for me. And then when you couple that with uh, Brandon Bruce's bass, which to me is uh, Rob Trujillo from Suicidal. It is that era of time where Rob was in suicidal tendencies and they he was doing in suicidal what Brandon is doing here. The bass was such a core part of their sound and his play style, which Brandon has a very sort of snappy and slappy um, you know, play style where you can feel every note that he's playing on the bass here, which again is not what you hear from a lot of thrash bands. You mm. don't have that funk element. You don't have that um, but you had it with suicidal tendencies when Rob was there and they have that in general, but definitely when Rob was there, he honed that part of their sound and, um, is what, which is what made me fall in love with him as a bass player. And I feel that so much in Havoc's music. So to me, it's like the complexity of Megadeth meets the, the funk and, um, you know, you, you said it feels composed, but it's almost like the, the. <laughs> the composed improvisation, I guess, like the, the ability of the solo to feel uh, natural and organic, but also be thoughtful and composed at the same time. Like it's a fine line to walk, but I feel like Rocky had that where you almost felt like sometimes he was going to go off the rails, but a lot of his solo work was a lot of fills and, you know, after verse mini solos and stuff like that, as opposed to what you get from a lot of uh, thrash bands and, and particularly from a Megadeth, which is like, here's the solo part of the song where we're going to trade off solos for two minutes and stuff like that, or we're going to end the song with a two minute sort of solo trade off. I feel like, you know, Reese, uh, 
has his spots in every song and he just destroys it each time. But it's like not, it never takes over the song. Yeah, true. I mean, so, uh, and we just some stats, we should say this album, it was released in 2020, 11 songs, 46 minutes, which is a good, you know, like we've talked about, uh, album length before. That's a good length. 11 songs, 46 minutes means that, as you said, none of them outstay their welcome. It's not self-indulgent. Uh, it's a good length, but it's not overly long. You know, you never feel like this album is sort of outstaying its welcome, which is good. Um, I will say that, I mean, this, I've, I've praised the band, uh, and I, I will praise them, you know, and I'll praise some of these songs as well, but I will say just in case, if people think that means that I'm going to I love this album quite as much as you. That's not the case. I I know that you regard it really highly. I did like it. Don't get me wrong. It's it's a good album and I will happily listen to it, but it's not quite there for me. Part of that is the lyrics, which are okay, but they're really on the nose. Like even for a thrash band, they are so <laughs> on the nose. It's they they they're Megadeth lyrics rather than Metallica lyrics if you want to make that comparison. Uh, and I've always preferred Hetfield's style of, of lyricism to uh, Mustaine's, I'm afraid. Um, but it is good. As I say, it's just, it's not, I wouldn't put it in my top albums of the year or something. And I think I would hope that maybe their next album is the peak rather than this one. Um, but it is still, yeah, you know, it, it is, I'll say that right up front. It is a, a, a good album. And I do agree that it's nice to have a modern thrash band who are clearly influenced by, but still trying to do new things with the classic formula and are taking a lot of care over the songwriting and the track order and making albums and just, you know, being putting a lot of thought into the craft of it. For sure. And I would, it's funny you mentioned that about the lyrics and I think, well, let's just talk about David Sanchez for a minute. So I think that, a lot of people's enjoyment of this band is going to come down to whether or not they appreciate David's vocal style. That's and, true. I mean, which I don't, it's not my preferred, but I don't mind it. It's certainly, it's not overkill. You know, it's not uh, like shrieking goblin trash. <laughs> you know what though? I think it is. I think that I think it's just behind the line. I mean, it's right up yeah, to it, but, but he, it's he, just behind the line. Here's what I'll say me. about this. This is my preferred thrash vocal style. I can definitively say that now. Wow. Like this is my preferred thrash vocal style. I would put him maybe at the top of the category of like your Exodus, your Overkill, uh, cr- uh, Creator. I would throw into that thing. I mean, there were, it's a it's a Venn diagram here, but this uh, screaming uh, and early Headfield, I would throw into that situation too because I, I i feel like that's where this all kind of started right and so yeah i will say I, kill, kill them all era vocals are i've yeah. never, never been my favorite <laughs> but they they are my and that's the thing is like they're i love that and i think that he's such a shining example of that so for me just to get that right out of the way up top like these his vocal style is perfectly what i want in here like it, it is a draw for me it not only it's not something i tolerate it is literally a draw for me uh, uh oh, in yeah. this band and um and i think i'm a i think i like goblin thrash i think that's my preferred <laughs> this is your coming out episode <laughs> i think so like i, I 
I just, I just kept, I actually, I like said that to myself several times, you know, listening to the, cause I, I mean, I've been listening to it since I bought the album, but as we got closer to like, as I'm making notes and stuff, I'm like, man, if this is Goblin Thrash, like this is thrash for me. This is what I want. And I think watching that documentary the other night too, um, of early thrash just bands, cemented you know, it for you, like, in yeah. the San Francisco scene, I'm like, yes, this is what thrash is to me. That this re- is what I want out of a, out of a, a thrash band, and so reminds um, me of when we did the uh, early on when we did the Within Temptation episode, and my friend Merlin listened to it and went, "I guess apparently I l- love symphonic metal now." Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Like like, he had no idea. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, it really did click for me in that way. But you also talked about his sort of lyrical writing, and I would say that if the sound of the band is reaching its peak right now with this particular lineup. I think there may be one album away lyrically, because I think what you'll find is if you go backwards through their albums, if you feel like this is on the nose, this is the least on the nose that their lyrics have been. In fact, Conformicide was um, uh, one of the criticisms that was leveled against it was that it was it was uh, too preachy in a a lot of what they were doing. And so um, definitely that has been a, a... if not a critique, uh, certainly a note on Sanchez's uh, lyrical stylings is that they are uh, very straightforward. Sure. Which is interesting because on this album, he's talking about some pretty why he's talking about panpsychism here. Oh, sure. Which I mean, we can some, talk about yeah. <laughs> when we get to the song, but he's talking about it in a in a in a I, very I straightforward way. I guess how would you way, want yeah. him to talk about panpsychism? Yeah, <laughs> you know what I, I mean? Like, yeah. all right. Well, let's let's wait until we get to it. So, um. Let's get into the tracks then, and we'll start, of course, with the track, uh, with the album opener, track one, Post Truth Era. I mean, the Metallica comparison starts now, right? Uh, <laughs> the award for the most Metallica opening of all time, not recorded by Metallica, goes to... <laughs> I love it. I love it. Because the thing is, like, if you listen to... If you're listening to it with headphones, you'll hear their more complex uh, guitar line coming in well before the blackened guitar part comes in but if you're not listening to it with headphones the first thing that you'll hear is the blackened nod and so it they i mean clearly they know what they're doing with that right it is it is unmistakable (laughs) i mean you Uh, (laughs) how could you not (laughs) 
And I and here's what I love about that is it sets a tone of like, oh boy, wow, is this? And then when it shifts and when the song kicks in, to me, we're off in a completely different direction now. But that opening, I think, is a great way to start because I think everybody who listens to it goes, holy shit, that's that's blackened. Are yeah. they really <laughs> starting the song with the blackened opening? <laughs> And they do, but just enough of their own. Like I said, their own line comes in yeah. underneath that uh, before you hear the black and line. But yeah, it's, well, and it's the main without song, a shadow of a doubt. And the main song is much more trad thrash than blackened. Uh, you know, it, it, For sure. it doesn't have crazy time signatures and all that sort of stuff. And it is a really trad thrash song to open with, um, which I, I think, you know, works to set out their stall, you know, in that they are clearly... There's no denying they are a band hugely influenced by traditional thrash. And, you know, if that's the case and you're not embarrassed about it, then there's no point shying away from it. Um, and this is, you know, it's a good opener. It's not quite it's not quite the sort of smack in the face that you get from a creator opening, but it is, it's fast, it's catchy, you know, it's got some great playing in it. Uh, good chorus. Um, really, I love the shouted chorus. Really I love chorus. the anthemic... It does bring, shouted stuff. I do have one criticism uh, that actually kind of applies throughout the album, which is that there are times when I wish, regardless of whether or not you like his vocal style, there are times that I really wish the vocals were more clear on specifically the chorus lines, like the bits that you know are meant, people are meant to sing along to and that you want the crowd to be punching the air with, you know? Sometimes his enunciation is good, but sometimes the chorus lines just get, they're muddy you know they just get lost Mm. in the mix uh and i think sometimes that's because there's a tendency to double track those things and if you don't do it exactly right it just sort of you know it just actually muddles things up and you can't quite hear what he's saying uh which is a shame because like i say this is you know it is a good chorus and it is a proper sing-along chorus uh when they get to it What's interesting, too, about a lot of the t- things that they do is they'll do that sort of anthemic shouting, but uh, oftentimes at the like the last line of a verse, as opposed to like the actual like chorus itself. Yes. And, and they'll use it to, you know, like in this one, there's a part where they scream that we live in today and the drums follow yeah. that as well, you know, for extra emphasis. And I just like it's little things like that. Like I love um, this. I think this track has the most sort of galloping drums of and, and I mean. I don't know how many different ways I can describe drums, but I'll just say this. (laughs) Pete Weber's drums are, they reminded me of uh, Charlie Benante on We've Come For You All. Like, he just feels like an octopus in this, uh, on this album. Like, he's just all over the kit. And... I just love that. Like, and just the, the so much symbol work too, like so much symbol work. Um, right. But again, different... without overwhelming the mix, uh, you know, right. Because it's... it's like, it's like the perfect sort of, uh, accompaniment to, to different things that they're doing, like at certain parts of the songs and stuff like that, but just like a mastery of the kit that's going on here. But in this first song, it is a very sort of galloping, um, as you said, like traditional thrash, which is interesting because I almost feel like if they ripped the Band-Aid off and went with their more proggy stuff right out of the gate, maybe that could be a little off-putting as opposed to, like, building to it. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and the album so does build as well. That's the other thing yeah, is that totally again, this is something that I saw uh, a couple of reviewers mention about this album is that it doesn't lag at any point. It actually feels like it starts to get more intense towards the end, which obviously is not something that you get with uh, a lot of albums that kind of sag in the middle. Uh, well, this one just seems like every song builds on the one before it, uh, and that is again, I think that's. A uh, testament, if you'll pardon the pun, to the amount of thought that went into the order of the tracks, the track listing. Um, it really works. Yeah, and this is a good example of like ripping solo, but not overly long. Yeah, and, and it's a solo in like the traditional spot in the song, but not an overly long solo, and just kind of a ripping, you know, straight thrash solo. Not anywhere near as complex as some of the other stuff that he does on this album, but most definitely lets you know right away, like, oh, okay. This dude can play guitar. Um, So it kind of puts all those pieces in place. It's a good introduction to you're dealing with a very, um, you're dealing with a full sound here. You're dealing with like all the pieces are in place. Now we're going to, let's see where we go with it, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Um, And it has a proper ending, which as everybody knows gets bonus points from me. Uh, most of the most tracks of the on, songs this, on this album do, but with not the all. exception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but to go, to lyrically, before we move off of this song, so uh, post truth era is the name of the song. Uh, this is the whole like don't believe what you see. Miss, th- this whole album, I feel like, is very steeped in um, people needing to think for themselves, people being uh, led by misinformation, people not questioning what they see and hear on a yeah. regular basis, the role that technology plays in sort of hypnotizing the masses. And, you know, uh, which none of that is incorrect. I mean, just go like this. We're talking about Twitter. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, the fact that, uh yeah, well, I mean, not even to get into political stuff, but even just like the the misinformation around the health of the president of the United States right now, right? And and what we're hearing from his team versus what you actual journalists are out trust there uncovering. Anything that yeah, no. that you're told it is like very anti authoritarian. Exist yeah. without actual journalists digging up actual information because what was coming out of the White House was just propaganda at you know at one point. And so, um, the, you know, he's spot on. But I think to your point, he's very spot on. Right. It's yeah. not there's no metaphor here. No. <laughs> it, is, it, it is uh you know, it is like, listen, technology is blinding you. What you're seeing and what you're hearing is not accurate. You need to wake up and think for yourself. You need to like so um It's like which, that I, I mean, wonderful Garth Maringi quote. I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. <laughs> right. And the thing is, like, I don't wanna at the same time, like I don't wanna seem um snooty about it either right like i like that you have to write in metaphor like if your lyrics are too on the nose like it's it's not as intelligent or something like that like this is clearly it's a choice um, every interview yeah it's a choice because every interview that you see with sanchez like it is very clear that he puts so much thought into everything that they do that he is uh well he's got a lot of stuff that he wants to talk about yeah (laughs) he's a very smart dude he's got a lot of stuff that he wants to talk about and um so the I think the lyrics are the most straight ahead thing that this band does. You yeah. know, like everything else has these layers of complexity to it, whereas the lyrics, for the most part, are pretty straightforward. Yeah, that's that's a fair comment. Yeah, um, like I said, it's just not it's not my personal taste. I don't mind these lyrics at all, um, but they do remind me actually of like in some ways of early Anthrax, in that they are very straightforward. And yeah, there's no metaphor, and it's just kind of 
you know, it's all there on the page. And I personally prefer a bit of metaphor and a bit of ambiguity, but that is just, you know, I acknowledge that is just personal taste. I mean, Christ, you know, let's not also forget, you know, me, the, uh, the Lemmy lover and, you know, Lemmy was known to write a few straightforward lyrics in his time. So <laughs> a few, <laughs> a few, not all, but he, a few. you know, he broke with tradition sometimes yeah. and, and, you know, just so, left it right on the nose. But yeah, it's, it's a good opening track and it does, you know, as we've talked about before, it sets out the stall for the album for sure. It prepares you for uh, what is coming. Well, or rather it, it prepares you for the kind of album that's coming. But as we'll get into later in the album, not necessarily for the twists and turns that the album takes, which I, I think is a very good thing. Um, so let's go on to track two, which is Fear Campaign. God, is this song awesome? I mean, hit the lights, right? Oh. If, if we're going to draw comparisons, do you know what it reminds me of? And I don't, I can't, I can't put my finger on it. But actually, not Metallica. This one reminds me of Judas Priest. Oh, I can totally see Judas Priest here, and I also uh, feel like this is. Uh, there's a part in this song where it turns into a Megadeth song, and so, and I'm saying this stuff not to be reductive at all. These are the influences that I'm hearing yeah, yeah. in here and, 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 and nods that I'm hearing. But I think th- this is a good example of what I was talking about before, where I feel like they take their influences and then they improve on the formula because what they've done here is they've put together multiple influences to create something different. And that's what I kind of love. So I can hear the Metallica in there I could totally see Judas Priest now that you mentioned it. I can hear the Megadeth in there, but they're 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 making a peanut butter cup here. They're putting my chocolate <laughs> and my peanut butter together, and they're creating something that's even better than those two things. And so, like that's where I feel like they they respect what came before, but man, they make it their own here. Um, yeah, I think the opening solo here actually is also one of the best examples on the album of what I was talking about about how they feel like they're composed. Like it is blistering technically you know it's a very very technical solo but it is also very melodic and it fits in with the song with its position in the song you know it's just it's it's perfectly placed and as you said doesn't last for you know like it it doesn't go on for like 90 seconds or something it's in does its business and then gets out again uh and lets the song continue which yeah is which is just 
again, unusual in modern <laughs> bands, let's be honest. Um, and another great chorus as well. I love the chorus in this one. This is a proper fucking awesome. shout along. Uh, you know, you can really imagine crowds getting into this one. Uh, at gigs. Well, when they yell fear and then he screams in that goblin-y, yeah. shrilly, they're using fear to control you. It's so good. Like, it's such a one-two punch of like... I freaking I love this song. Like it's such a good example of like just kick ass thrash, and it but it also has that early Metallica feel where it uh, it uh, it it's got this sort of freewheeling feel to it too. Even though it is a really really tight song, the symbols in in the symbol work in the song is so it's so good. And I think this is the first song I feel like we're only on song two here where you can really start to feel that snap of the bass. Yes. Yes. And so it's all starting to come together here. Well, and then we get to like two minutes and 20 seconds, and this song turns into Head Crusher from Megadeth. And that's what I was going like, to say. That's where the bass comes into its own, I think, here, is when you uh, get that halftime dude, chug in the middle eight, and the bass suddenly so seems good. to jump up in the mix, and you've got those stop starts in the rhythm. That's really nice, yeah. And this is a band, too. Here's what I also love about this band. Here's a band that's not afraid to use the whammy bar, and it's not afraid to use... Uh, the wah pedal, but to great effect, as opposed to some other cases where it's not used to great effect. Um, and again, I'll just say improving on the formula. Um, many places where they are improving on the formula, uh, you know, hit the lights. Am I saying this is a better song than hit the lights? No. Am I saying the drums are a hundred times better than Lars's and hit the lights? Yes. That is what I'm saying in this song. And so there are elements of these songs that they are improving upon what that foundation was that they came into here. So I'm not saying the riff is better than hit the lights, but I'm saying that like as a complete song, yes, they are improving on a lot of these early thrash influences that they are are pulling together here. Mm. Um, that is and, one thing, said, actually. That I, I mean, the riffs, the not the choruses, but the sort of the general song riffs, the verse riffs and stuff, are at times a little pedestrian on this album. That is one other criticism I have of it is that they're not, you know, they don't have or most of them, not all. There are a couple of exceptions that we'll talk about, but most of them don't have that catchiness that good thrash riffs can have you know as proven by a lot of the you know early stuff from the big four especially you know their riffs yes they're kind of they're impressive technically and they're really fast and heavy and all that sort of stuff but they're also catchy they are riffs that stick in your mind um and there aren't that many of riffs like that on this album in the verses i'm talking about as i say not the choruses. i think we might yeah i, I mean uh, we, I, I we think might, the first uh, track actually post-truth era has got one of the catchiest verse riffs uh on the album i think for sure that's definitely one that does stick in your mind but this one it took me a long time before i could remember anything other than the chorus in this song you know what i find fascinating about this song and what i love from a from a guitar standpoint is the chorus riff is kind of just a repeat of the opening riff right but then the lead line that's over the riff in the chorus makes it just take off yeah. right as he's screaming they're using fear to control you and in the background it's like it's it's there's this like manic off the rails 
feel to the chorus in the way that it's played there. So you have the the kind of standard riff and then you have the lead line over the top of it that is just like going crazy as they're screaming and as they're shouting fear like to, the way that that all works together for me is like perfect. Yeah. It, um, it intensifies the riff, yeah. It does so much dude and then bam, we hit 2 minutes and 20 seconds and then it turns into head crusher from Megadeth where you've got that breakdown. Um, and the, and the, just the solo that follows there again, not super long, but fits the song perfectly. And, uh, yeah, I just feel like, and this is a three minute and 57 second song. And I feel like it is, uh, it uses every second of that song. Well, and effectively, <laughs> Um, I think they do that. So with a I lot freaking of the love this song. Songs, yeah, because I mean, I mean three fifty-seven is about you know four minutes is about average for the tracks on this album. Um, and yeah, like I said before, very little of it feels like wasted time, um, which is to their credit, I think, absolutely. So track three then is betrayed by technology. intro to this song is I, I i love it i mean this is a this is a great example of them almost like they're building the song in pieces the first riff comes in it's very megadethy to me um like countdown to extinction era megadeth where it almost feels like it's being played in reverse it's got this weird sort of uh, otherworldly feel to it and then the drums start to come in and then the bass comes in, like, the way that it sort of builds and it all comes together and then just locks into the chuggingest chuggy chug chug riff. <laughs> it's so good. Like, it's I, I love the build into the lock into the rhythm into this song. Um, it reminds me of Ashes in Your Mouth from Megadeth. It reminds me, this is where I really start to get... Uh, suicidal tendencies vibes here too and it just like uh it just locks in and then the pauses that they take like at 48 seconds there's that tiny pause where everything drops out for one second and it's like that's the kind of thing that gives me chills 
and I like get fired up about. And so it's those little elements that come together. So to me, this song feels like it builds perfectly on the song that came before it. And now we're three songs in and I'm like, fuck yes. This album is like really coming together. Well, one of the things I like is that the songs, even though they are all, so I mean, all three of the opening songs really are quite traditional thrash, but they don't sound, none of them sound like the other, which is nice. Um, I can totally see the suicidal. I mean, I hadn't really thought of that until you mentioned it earlier, but I can now that you've said it, I can totally see the suicidal kind of vibes in this one because it's the bass that holds this song together. Like yes. the, the riff isn't really anything special. It's solid, but it's, you know, it's nothing special. Uh, but the bass is really prominent and under the chorus, you can hear the bass uh, doing, you know, as we said earlier, actual bass lines not just root notes. And he does, I mean, as we said, he does that a lot throughout the album, but on this song in particular, I feel like this is the first one where it's prominent enough in the mix that you can hear him doing that under the chorus. He, you know, he's doing his own thing. Um, And I also like how the chorus riff here is completely different to anything, to what we've had in the previous songs. Again, we've got three three traditional thrash songs with three good sing-along choruses, and they've all been different. Uh, and you know, that's harder to do than you might think as evidenced by the number of bands who don't manage it. Uh, <laughs> and then of course yep. you've got the middle eight where he's practically doing a Rex Brown impression and the bass really holds the entire middle eight down while those guitars do the, the dual solo for a few bars. Um, yeah, really nice. Yeah. I, I love it. I mean, just the, uh, like you said, you can really hear the bass in the chorus, like that that whole boom, 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 like and just like as the like the tapping is going on above it and stuff like that, and just the way that the chorus bounces off the regular uh, verse riff, which is just like super chug, and then kind of crashes into the chorus. I just uh, I, I like the way they contrast a lot of that stuff in this band, where like the chorus does feel it's not that it doesn't feel like it fits with the riff, but it's a different direction. Oh, totally. You know, well, like in, in, as a good chorus should be, you know, it's a chorus shouldn't, it should be a key change. It should be a chord change. That's part of what makes a chorus. Um, well, in a lot of cases though, too, with them, it's a tempo change too, right? Which is, which true, is kind yeah. of interesting as well. Well, all the, all what, what actually, I think a lot of them are not tempo changes so much as they just start, they just double time. So it's, it's, yep. it's strictly speaking, it's the same tempo, but they'll be double timing the rhythm rather than, you know, single time in it to speed things up or sometimes slow things down, which they do occasionally right. do on some of the choruses. It. Um, technocracy does not mean what he thinks it means. Uh, but apart from that, <laughs> the lyrics <laughs> aren't too bad. <laughs> is that your well actually for this? It, uh, it, it for is, this, yeah. Uh, as soon as I heard yeah. that, I was like, wait, is he does he think it means oh never yes. mind. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. It does not mean That's... rule by machines. <laughs> uh, hey, it does yeah. in the havoc world, all right? He should get on That's the phone to Burton C. Bell and uh, you know, get some lessons about uh, doing songs about the machines taking over humanity. <laughs> well, I think he you get the point though, right? Yeah, yeah, Technology's yeah. No, gonna no, no, so this is the Skynet song. Yeah, no, I, I mean, mean look, they're the... good lyrics. They're not they're not bad lyrics. It just made me laugh like when I heard it, I was like, Oh, oh, it's an easy mistake to make. <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's uh, again, no, not a lot of metaphors here. I can see the writing on the wall. Our way of life is about to fall. Um, Technological system overhaul. Yeah, and then he, yeah. Yeah, there's a technocracy has been installed. That's not what he means, but never mind. Um, yeah, I mean, he literally, where is it? 
I mean, the chorus, betrayed by technology, transcending biology, it's coming worldwide, full-scale automation realized. They're yep. great chorus lyrics. It's just so on the nose. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, this this uh, the video for this could just be that uh, robot dog that now like climbs over <laughs> boxes and does parkour and shit now. Like they, yeah. like they just keep pushing the bar. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah, good song. Uh, another one that ends properly. Uh, I've noticed that actually that up until now, all three of the opening songs also end uh, almost entirely on his vocals. Like they all end. Oh yeah, good point. I didn't even note that. Yeah, they all end with him basically shouting a vocal, and then you know a couple of guitar chords, and that's it. That's the end of the song. Um, but that contributes to that feeling of immediacy. You know what that does is really kind of give the end of a song a punch uh, because you will probably sing along with it. You know, and and that's it. And so the song ends with your fist in the air, kind of thing. It's uh, you know, it's a good way to end a song. It's one of the reasons why I like songs that end properly rather than fading out because it has that impact and that immediacy um and yeah this one does the same and then moves on to track four which is ritual of the mind I think is uh again if we're sticking with the injustice for all uh comparisons here I have the beholder. Oh, yeah. It's so I have the beholder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh it kind of comes in that way but again um you can hear the bass on this song so I'll go back to the improving on the formula. Uh and once it kicks in it is just a crusher and it's nice to have that it's nice to have this sort of slower tempo song after you've had three burners yeah. to sort of start the album. It's like you get hit with three haymakers right out of the gate, and then you get this one, which is a, a little bit slower tempo, but very heavy. Um, and again, I feel like when they lock in, and the, there's just a lot of things I love about this song. I mean, the, again, here's a good example of where you've got shouted anthemic uh, backing vocals in a verse like he's yeah. he's saying uh they want a war on drugs and when he gets to war on drugs like the whole band is like war on drugs uh but not the ones they sell because they're making too much money again uh, like not not a lot of metaphor there in the lyrics yeah. <laughs> but uh you know this is your uh 
this is your so legalization, uh, what drugs are legal, what drugs are not legal, that kind of stuff, like expanding your mind, which kind of gets into now, I would say thematically is the shift here of the first few songs we've had kind of, hey, technology is bad. It is spreading misinformation. Politicians are bad. bad. (laughs) You're being mind controlled. This is kind of the, the, uh, this is kind of the free your mind song, right? Yeah. And then as we go forward, we get into some really trippier stuff, which is like, and let's talk about like the consciousness that exists in, um, in all things, you know, a rock, uh, or, (laughs) or, or, you know, uh, your mailbox and stuff like that. And so, it, it, that's kind of like, it, and it goes back to what you said before about them being uh, picking the song order that they're having here. Like there is kind of a story being told here, which is like break from technology, expand your mind, understand that everything is connected, sort of thing. Harmonize and this is kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is kind of the the sort of uh, f- start to free your mind uh, chapter, if you will, of of where we're going here. So we've we've established over three songs that technology bad. Yeah, <laughs> and now we're now we're moving into free, open up your mind a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, uh, well, and it's and it, you talked about that, you know, the the Eye of the Beholder style riff. It's a really good riff as well. I think this is actually one of the better riffs, uh, certainly on the first half of the album. You know, of the of the main riffs, and the chorus is genuinely unusual here. Um, again, doesn't sound like any of the other songs that came before it. Uh, it's, you know, odd chords and odd melody, odd vocals yes. as well. It's really memorable. I really like it. Um, parts of this song remind me of Death's later proggy albums. Uh, oh, interesting. Including the lyrics. I mean, it's not nowhere near as fast as most Death stuff, obviously, but there are bits of this, things like that really unusual chorus uh, that yeah, just remind me of sort of like you know I don't know maybe symbolic or something. Um, uh, yeah, it yeah, interesting. And the middle eight here is another one where the bass shines for a bit and it lets the whole song breathe. Even though it's not a breakneck speed song, it is still as you no, said, it's it, heavy. Like, it is heavy, and so that middle eight just lets everything breathe for a minute. It's good, good dynamics in the songwriting. And before we get into the solo, it's almost a little Weezer esque, right? It's just very like it's just kind of yeah, very yeah. simple. <laughs> and then you get into the solo, which is uh, which feels a little more open in this. I think it goes back to the dynamics that you're that yeah. you're talking about, Anthony, where it just feels a little more. There is more room to breathe in this song, and part of that is just due to the the kind of tempo that we have uh, in this song here. But yeah, it's. Uh, it's still heavy and it still has that complexity, but it's a nice change of pace from the first three songs. Well, and, and it's, it kinda, it's also got that bit at the end with the, the pounding drums bit when he's, you know, the whole, we must yeah. return to nature stuff. That's not, that's new. That's not, that's not taken from an earlier part of the song. Like nothing right. there is anything, you know, has appeared already in the song. So you've got this whole 45 seconds or so at the end. But he's just completely different to the rest of the song. But he's very powerful, again, and very heavy. And this is another song where the snap of the bass, where it's like, but you know, you could just hear every, you can feel every single note on the bass. And uh, I think, you know, we're now at the point where that that part of the sound is really up front now. And um, 
I just love it. Like it reminds me so much of, uh, I mean, you mentioned Pantera, which is a great comparison too, but definitely like Rob Trujillo, like that, that, yeah, yeah. that feels well, so I, present. I, I mentioned Rex Brown just because of the way that Rex used to basically hold down the middle eight while mm-hmm. Dime was off, you know, widdly, widdly, widdly soloing. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. You know, and there is nobody better at that than Rex. And like, I mean, I suppose there might be now, but certainly at the time there was nobody better at that and tighter at that than Rex. And that's kind of what this feels like here is you can just drop out the guitars for 16 bars and it's fine. You know, the bass will yep. hold everything together. Yep, for sure. All right, let's move on to track five, Interface with The Infinite. This is kind of, again, we're still in that chapter of like... Yeah, in case you weren't getting the message about the uh, this progression of the right. lyrics. <laughs> well, this is the... Now we're getting into the mushrooms now. You know, now we're getting into the... We're going to we're gonna get a little bit more psychedelic here. And you have this sort of like uh, the, the sort of uh, tapping opening there where it's uh, a, definitely a different opening to a song. Yes. Yes. It's... Uh, so, I mean, this song is... Again, parts of this remind me of Death's later prog stuff. Again, you know, especially the lyrics on this one. Um, It is also one of many pieces of evidence on this album, I think, that uh, I will be astounded if David Sanchez is not, quote-unquote, familiar with psychedelics because there are quite a few lyrics on the towards the end of this album from here onwards that are very clearly about psychedelics and... Yep. Speaking as somebody who is also "quote unquote" familiar with them, yeah, uh, yes, yeah, it comes from a place of I think of experience. I don't, yeah, you can't, think, you can't, yes, yeah, I don't think you Agreed. could write these specific lyrics if you hadn't had that experience, uh, and I appreciate that because, frankly, there aren't enough pro psychedelic uh, lyrics in modern metal, and I think there should be. Um, Agre- I agree with you, and I also think that it lends a credibility to especially because like because a lot of these lyrics are kind of on the nose you could uh you could question the credibility of their writer in that way you know what i mean because they're not a lot of the stuff is so straight ahead it's like well anybody can write about that is that something that you actually believe or is it something that you've actually experienced and i think now we're, we're getting into an area where like there's been some experience here um or you wouldn't get which is ironic, right? Because maybe the lyrics are a little bit deeper here than um, yeah. than on some of the other songs there. Um, yeah, and the bass is off doing its thing again in this track, Man. which I really like. It's a really, again, the bass, 
I wouldn't say it necessarily holds this track together in the way that it does some of those earlier ones, but it is. But it's a nasty. It's not well, and it's dude just doing really interesting things. This is a song where you can sit and listen to the bass, you yes. know, sort of pick it out of the mix and be very entertained. It has like this bubbling quality to it, almost like you're watching water boil. You know, it's like <laughs> it's just got this rolling kind of bubbling. Uh, you know, and then the chugs behind it are faster than like in the previous song, the the ritual of the mind song. So it's like, it it's, it's still not, it's not speed metal, but it's got this added layer of sort of complexity there. And then, um, you know, at one point it, it goes full, like Testament Megadethy uh, type of song. Um, really good. So I, I felt like this, well. I, I felt like the solo was very Testament ish in this, um, you know, maybe that's why I liked and, it. Yeah, this is one of my favorite solos, I would say, on the album. I think it's really good, melodic, you know, again, suits the track, you know, just sort of, yeah, really nice. Yeah, I felt like the solo was a little, t- and then that just the whole um, way that it, you know, at two minutes where it locks into that other riff is just like the, the, that riff is so cutting. Like it's so like stilted almost, you know, mm. where it's just like it it cuts in a way that the rest of the song felt like it was a little more uh, blunt, you know, and this is just like razor sharp when they kick into. And I like that they play with that, too. They play with like the stuff that's a little bit more raw versus the stuff that feels. And that's where I think I get the Megadeth vibe from is the very um, cutting and very precise, uh, you know, way of playing a riff and stuff like that. I like that they mix and match those or they play them off of one another um but again like the the stuff that is happening on bass here is not something that is happening in in i think in earlier megadeth they they were freer uh ellison was freer with a lot of that bass stuff and i think a, a lot of times as megadeth went on the bass got a little more a little less interesting the bass lines until um lomenzo came into the band and then like his bass work uh, on the albums that he played on was kind of incredible. And I feel like that has kind of carried on since Ellison came back to the band. But, you know, when the baseline is just so interesting and it just pops off of the song in a way that, uh, like you said, you could just listen to that and be content with it. Well, actually, now that I think about it, and I hadn't considered this before, but now that I think about it, maybe that's one of the reasons why I get a bit of a death vibe from this song. Because, of course, uh, from, you know, um, during that, peak proggy period of death you had steve DiGiorgio on bass and he was just doing like some crazy shit uh you know <laughs> it was like almost like he was playing a completely different song to the rest of the band uh on his fretless and uh it's such a signature part of those albums uh that maybe hearing the bass here like i say just kind of do its own thing and do really interesting stuff rather than just playing root notes maybe that's one of the reasons that one of the things that brought death to mind i don't know but it is good. Right. And it's like in this song, it feels like the rest of the song serves the baseline as opposed to the flip, you know, which is usually the case in that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that goes back to this idea of like lead drums, lead bass, yeah. lead guitar, you know, <laughs> lead vocals of like, it, it is, uh, there's that versatility there where it, they can, they can really play with that. And I like that they're using, it's kind of like they're using all the tools in the toolbox. And that's what I like about these songs is that it's not, I don't ever feel like there's an instrument or, or Sanchez's vocals that are getting short shrift in a song. True. Like they forgot yeah. about one of them there, or they didn't prioritize one of them. Like every song, it feels like they're leveraging 
the the full tool set and i like that well uh, yeah i mean we've made several comparisons to it comparisons to injustice for all already uh between you know this album and that and uh but you know one where there is absolutely no comparison <laughs> is the bass in the mix <laughs> For sure, and like, but but even then, to take it a step further, like, imagine Rob Trujillo of, uh, and granted, he's in Metallica now, but he's not, he's not uh, playing suicidal uh, bass lines no. in, you know, Metallica. But imagine like adding suicidal bass lines, and that's the kind of like breaking from the formula or like improving on the formula stuff that I love. It's like, what if we took Rob Trujillo and we put him in Megadeth? And had that be, you know, on on the, you know, uh, Peace Cells album or something like that. Like, it's it's interesting to hear that combination um, play out. Yeah, well, and you want to talk about, you know, sort of experimentation and advancing the formula and all that stuff. Let's uh, quickly go on to track six, which is the instrumental Dabbed Sog. Or as I like to call it, like, hey, have we given a nod to Sepultura yet on this album? No? Okay. <laughs> Let's do that now. I hadn't thought of that, but yes, now that you've said it, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> and I just love that. It's like, it's almost like they're like, hey, man, uh, it, it to me, it almost feels like they're giving a high five to like all of the the influences that they're building on to create their own sound now and just being like, Hey, who did we forget? Anybody? No Exodus. All right. Let's make sure we give a nod to Exodus in this song or Testament. We got Testament. Great. Okay. Sepultura, right? Okay. Song six, we'll hit Sepultura. Um, well, and I just love that about it. But what's interesting about this song is that, I mean, it's, it is an instrumental. It's only a minute and 15 long films that, you know, it's clearly just a sort of atmospheric break. Uh, that builds into the next track. But what's interesting is that it does literally connect to the next track because Dab Sog is the name, uh, the Mong name for a night hag, you know, the sleep paralysis demon uh, myth. Yep. And it leads directly into track seven, which is Phantom Force. Yes. And this song is entirely about sleep paralysis and nightmares and somebody who's come back from a war uh, and now can't sleep. So, you know, even the instrumental 
and it's only a title, I know, but even the instrumental has had, you know, some thought put into it that helps the album feel more cohesive. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and it's that it, it, it's nothing more or less than that, right? It's not, it's not that we're like overvaluing that. It's just that it's nice. It's, it's that attention. It to gives detail. you another reason to connect and it, and it makes the album feel connected. And as we've talked about before, especially in today's music listening era, where so much music is, is uh, streamed in singles, right. Mm-hmm. Or uh, playlists or, or you know, mixes or, yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. And shuffled and stuff like that. Like, to have bands that still care about and pay attention to the flow of an album as it was meant to be listened to is something I deeply appreciate. Yeah. Well, and it's and, something that, you know, that I wouldn't say you only find it in metal, but I feel like metal is really one of the last genres where you will, you will find that love of the yeah. album and that attention to, and I mean, you know, you could say, well, is that because we're all stuck in the past or something? I don't know. I genuinely don't know if that's the answer or if it's just something about this kind of music that you want to listen to a whole album. Well, you know, you want to hear a whole sort of chunk of work put forward as the artist intended you to listen to it. Well, and it was made for the artists and for the audience as opposed to for the radio. And so yes. if you, it's a, it's a genre that grew up almost knowing. I mean that was the thing about Metallica Forever, right? When remember when they Couldn't did their first video, the radio, it was yeah. like I I bought the VHS of one. Yeah. <laughs> about the VHS tape well, they didn't of their make video videos single. for years, did they? Cause they got, because they didn't make videos, They got right? accused and, of and being the, sellouts when they finally did. 100%. <laughs> and and just the idea that like, you know, uh, that's why we loved Headbangers Ball so much is because our songs didn't get played on the radio in that day. I mean the the like the hair metal stuff did and, and things like that, but again, those were a lot of albums that were written for the single, were written for the hits, whereas opposed to like the the heavier stuff, a lot of it was like, look, this is going to be experienced in a very specific way because we're not getting played on the radio. It's not like people are going to hear track five, you know, and, and that changed a little bit, you know, in terms of the exposure of it as kind of time went on. But I think the roots of the genre are one of like, you're not going to hear it on the radio. So it was like let's be thoughtful rock. about, it was, yeah. you know, it was the same thing with prog bands was like, you know, nobody was playing, you know, nine, 10 minute prog epics on the radio. You might hear them late night on a request show or something, but you weren't going to hear them on the Hot 100, you know? Um, and so, yeah, they were all written for the album and their audience grew up appreciating and wanting albums that felt like cohesive pieces of work. Totally. Um, anyway, so with that, let's talk about Phantom Force. <laughs> this, to me, is like the nod to like Exodus and Creator. I feel like this is a straight-up thrashy uh the, the song where you know you talked about this kind of ptsd and uh feeling pursued and stuff like that i think the the song really captures that vibe of like this sort of frantically uh running from and not being able to escape sort of thing i i feel like the lyrics and the music in this song really match up well in terms of the vibe that it sort of creates and this is another one that has like a you know a a great bass line in it too yeah yeah, I love the the stop start sort of drill riff chorus in this one. It's a really good, again, catchy chorus, uh, but you know, with not sacrificing heaviness. Um this a lot of this song actually reminds me of Latter day Pantera again. Not okay. just not just Rex Brown, but just like in the composition and that riff and some of the drums and you know, if this just had a little more groove, 
you could absolutely imagine it on, you know, one of the later Pantera albums, like Steel yep. or something, you know? Um, yeah, it, it's a really good song and it is like fast and crushing. Uh, yeah, really good. One of the, um, interesting things that I noticed musically about it during the second instance, towards the end, the second instance, when he sings crushed by a paranormal phantom force, that bit, basically the chorus. Um, uh, but it's got a slower rhythm to the first instance. Uh, there's a part later where, you know, they they do the same thing and it's, it is the same riff, but it's done at a kind of like in a slower rhythm, you know, sort of half time compared to earlier. Listen to the bass during that section. The guitars are just doing triplets on a single chord, you know, doing that bit. But the bass is doing its own thing. And if you listen to what it's doing, it's a sort of a traditional Halloween style spooky scale going do 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 up and down the bass line. Yep. And <laughs> it just I don't know. That put me in mind of typo negative. It felt like the kind of thing that typo oh. negative would hide really low in the mix of one of their songs, you know, just for sort of like, nobody else will hear this or, you know, you have to be listening to hear it, but we know it's there and we think it's funny. It, I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it felt like a nice I don't think little you are, though. I don't think you are because they, it, it feels like, and from what we've seen in interviews that they've said and stuff like that, that there is this, uh, there is a, a very much a want of them, of people to dig in mm. and, explore those layers and and for me like that's one of the things that makes this album such a great album for me is that it's i feel like i do get something new from it every time i listen to it it took and, me a few listens be... to spot that bass for sure yeah yeah and that's why like at first blush if you only listen to this album one time it would be very easy to be like yep metallica megadeth up oh, there's some pantera there's some suicidal oh there's the sepultura part there's it would be very easy to be dismissive of just hearing the influences the first time through but repeated listens i mean to me the the differences and in many ways the improvements like jump off the <laughs> they, they, they jump right out at you yeah it is uh, definitely as a they go here there's no question about that I, I will admit that the first few times i listened to this album i kind of slid off it you know it just there was i don't know it didn't quite grab me and i kept sort of i could barely remember any of it and i'd listen to it and go, oh, it's all right but i'm just not seeing it. and then it did take more than three you know it was like by this i don't know fifth or sixth listen or something when i finally went oh okay yeah, yeah, yeah. okay some of this is starting to stick now I'm, I'm starting to appreciate some of it um it definitely was a grow up but it did take those repeated listens to to get into it um let's move on to track eight cosmetic surgery I know 
this is one where it almost feels like you're you're coming into the song after it already kind of started. It's got that kind of wall of sound um, feel to it, and the the guitar tone felt a little bit. And I had to go back and look. I'm like, what Slayer song is this hitting? And it was uh, Spirit in Black was the was the one that I was. Uh, it's right. that one. It's that that's the tone that I hear. And um, but it, it feels like you're like you're jumping onto a moving train to me here like the song's already in motion as it begins and you're kind of uh jumping in there and i like that this is one of my favorite opening riffs on the album this is the other riff actually apart from the first track that stuck with me that you know that did stick in my mind after the first uh couple of listens um yeah i think it's definitely one of my favorite opening riffs really interesting just good solid riff um unfortunately for me the rest of the song doesn't quite live up to that opening um it's it's fine but it's not you know if there is a dip on this album it's this track now that's not to say that it is it's this this track is not a clunker by any means it's fine um but i think it is the weakest track on the album despite that opening riff which is a shame i do like the well here's where I was just going to say, I do like the pun in the lyrics. The whole truth lies in between. Ha ha, I gotcha. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. like, And I like the, the sort of shouted um, back and forth piece there. I think the bass is the standout uh, of this song. Again, there's parts of the bass that are just super snappy uh, in the song. But I think this song suffer. I would, to me, this may be the only song on the album to, to me, because I think it's, I wouldn't say it's perfect, but it's uh, pretty close. Where the main riff is not catchy. Mm. This is the one song where I, I, I think I agree with you where, you know, you said that there's some songs on this album that don't have the hook. And I just don't feel like this main riff on this song has something really for me to hold on to with it, but the bass carries it through for me. It also fades out. (sighs) Such a shame. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, but never and mind. There's a couple that do that, right? There's a couple, uh, but this was another solo. No, I, thought I think, that really I think reminded this is the me. only one. I think this is the only track that fades out. Oh, maybe it is. I don't think there are any other tracks on this album that do that. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's certainly this. It's the only one that I noted in, you know, literally in my notes. I've got, oh no, it fades out. <laughs> and this was another solo, by the way, that reminded me very much of Rocky George uh, from Suicidal. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, well, it fades out into track nine, which we mentioned earlier, Panpsychism. Visual and 
Yeah. Which, if people are scrambling to Google right now, is basically the idea that uh, all matter has some kind of experience and that consciousness is not unique to human beings. Which, again, I think goes back to, like, you've had to have taken a few trips to really wrap your mind around you know, oh, especially some of the stuff in here, like uh, consciousness is the bedrock of existence. <laughs> Dead or alive, there is communication, all that sort of. Yeah, there are lyrics in here where I'm just like, yeah, this man has taken a trip or two. Um, yeah, exactly. It's the longest track on the album, apart from the final track. Uh, but I think that kind of makes sense because this is by far the most proggy track on the album, both Agreed. both musically and lyrically. Um, I, and this has the to live is to die opening. It, uh, if, if we're keeping yeah. score on the Metallica well, scorecard there. Say, but I really like it. I really like that. Me too. Layered, I freaking love it. Dude. Yeah. That layered acoustic intro. And then the drums fade in and you get that lovely, uh, syncopated chugging rhythm on the guitars, totally. which we hear again in the chorus. It's really well put together. This is a contender for my favorite track on the album. Honestly. Um, the way that the well, verse... the baseline over under the chorus is just freaking great. The clean lyrics, you know, the yeah. the the background vocals and stuff like that the are consciousness really... is yeah 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 so good, dude. And then he, he you know with his voice contrasting to that, like this is another example of like using all the tools in the toolbox here and playing the the clean versus kind of gravelly gobliny vocals against one another and stuff. And there's just, uh, th- this song does, a, it covers a lot of ground. Yeah. Well, and it's got also got that thing where it does, the verse opens with uh, no guitars, just the bass and drums yep. and vocals. And Love I've it. mentioned before, I'm a sucker for that. I, I'm really totally. I'm a complete sucker for that. Um, and yeah, the chorus is really catchy. And I mean, this is again, something that's, easier you listen to it and you're like oh that's good but you you may unless you write songs you may not realize how difficult it is to pull off something that has an unusual rhythm not an odd time signature the time signature is fine but the rhythm that dun 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 you know kind of like oh, uh, so ev- good, everything's dude. like sort of it's urgent and everything's suspended and not quite resolved to do that with lyrics over the top and still be catchy is really fucking hard dude Dude, and the drums at oh, in that same passage are so fucking good, dude. Like there, there's just there's almost a part in every single song on this album where you're like, God bless it, they're firing on all <laughs> cylinders. Like it's just it it's almost like bliss, right? There's just like certain passages where you're like, Fuck, that's so good. Um, I love the breakdown here as well with that the bell, the single bell yes. tolls. You know, um, just yeah. I, Slightly cheesy, but it works. It works. And then you get that breakneck solo uh, following on after it, which is, again, you know, blistering, but fits. It absolutely fits right there in that space in the song. Plus you get the passage in this song that is a preview of the final song uh, at about 4.55. And it's played played on the electric guitar here, but it's played acoustically in the final song here which I thought was really cool. And there's a thematic connection of it too. But I also like how that then just flows right into the main bass line again. And uh, the bass sort of welcomes everybody back into the song again. And I just, there's, there's, there's a lot of great stuff going on in this song in terms of complexity and layers and things to go back and listen to and dig into. It's really uh, a satisfying song yeah. to sort of jump into. Well, I mean, I've made the death comparison on a couple of tracks. And while this song doesn't actually remind me of death in terms of how it sounds, 
it's a really good representation of the kind of progressive metal that I do really like and which is one of the reasons why I like that period of death that we covered when we did uh, their album. Um, Because, yeah, it's just, you know, it doesn't, at no point is the song sacrificed on the altar of, uh, you know, of prog. (laughs) You know, it's not, there's no self-indulgence going on here, as we we said earlier. Um, But it does have movements. It does have those changes. It does have, I think, some of the best lyrics on the album. Um, yeah, it's just, like I say, it's a real strong contender for my favourite track. Um, and then, <laughs> as a real antidote to the progginess of this track, we get track 10, Merchants of Death. brilliant brilliant place to put this song agreed yeah i mean holy shit (laughs) i mean we just got off of a freaking six and a half minute cosmic trip through consciousness right and and then we just get a two minute and 45 second burner that is a fantastic thrash song it just brings everything back into focus. Yeah. And this is a song where I feel like the riff is catchy as fuck. And it's just funky, thrashy. There's some lyrical stuff. There's not lyrical, but vocal stuff he does here that I think is just amazing. And then I love the shouted chorus parts. Like just, it all comes together here. Like this is, it's almost like on the last song they showed you, like if we expand the canvas a little bit, and takes six and a half minutes to kind of show you a lot of different, you can see kind of the, the robustness that this band is capable of. And then in the next song, they're like, we're going to take a scalpel and just be so focused on a no frills, just absolutely scientific thrash song. I, I love the contrast that nine and 10 give you here. And at this point in the album where most albums were already talking about, we're either in the dip or we're making questionable choices before the end of the album here as far as you know production goes and and here we are and it's like could this song be in a more perfect place yeah it really is like you say following on the prog the lengthy prog track with this is genius absolute genius and it is it, it's got everything it has a great intro it has a great riff the bass is one of the loudest things in the mix so good it's got a fantastic chorus riff it's got a whammy, insane solo. It's even yes. got a half-time middle eight. And, and it, it's got thundering drums. And it does thundering all drums. of that in two minutes and 45 seconds. Like, it, it is a perfect encapsulation of why you do not need 
I mean, you know, everybody knows I love long songs. I'm a sucker. I love it. You know, I will never complain about a long song as long as it's good. But you do not need seven minutes to make a brilliant thrash song. You can do it in the same time in which Black Sabbath played Paranoid, you know? You do not even need three minutes because everything that you need in a thrash track is in this song. Um, and it's even anti-war. What, a, what, a, what, Dude, what more classic says, metal subject could there be? <laughs> when he screams, the war is meant to go on, and then he screams forever. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah, like, yeah. this is like, that's just the icing on the cake that is the song. And I think, like, if someone says, well, why do you love Havoc? Like, what, the fact that, I would pull these two songs out and say the fact that this band is doing these two things and doing both of them right this next well. to one another and doing both of them this well really tells you everything that you need to know about this band. You could just take these two songs and have an hour. I mean, just have a conversation about these two songs and what's happening in these two songs. Um, and one is not, uh, you know, the the Merchants of Death is a more sort of straight ahead thrash song, but it's there is every bit the layers to pick apart in this song as well. And just the fact that these two songs exist next to each other and they feel so perfectly, you know, uh, complementary of one another is like so good. And I just love that they put, I mean, for many bands, this song, number 10, would be the best song in the album if you were listening to right. a thrash and album. And here it's and the track before the end. <laughs> it's the track before the end. Like, <laughs> damn, man, that the fact that you'd bury this song at number 10 shows, A, that you have confidence in this complete album, that people are still going to be around and, and be listening all the way through to get to this gem, and it rewards that, but also cleanses the palate of Song 9, perfectly puts you in position for what they're going to do, you know, differently with, with uh, Song 11, well, like, it also shows you how one of my favorite. It, it also shows you how confident they are in the strength of the other songs, yep, like totally. not just in bringing you to this point in the album, as you say, that people haven't lost interest. But how many bands would have like would record this song and go, okay, well, that's like track two, you know, yeah. like because one hundred percent, dude. You know, there's no way we're putting not putting something this fast, heavy, and great right up front at the top of the album, and they don't need to. And, uh, yeah, I th- say that's, I, I think that's speak well in the restraint of doing it, as you said, like holding it back, uh, until I, so it comes after the prog track and, uh, having enough faith that listeners will not get bored before then and get to it. It's yeah, it, it's kind of like, I say, you I go, mean, I don't usually get like crazy excited about the second to last song on it, like the placement of the second yeah. to last song on the album. <laughs> but like, I'm fired up over the fact that they put this at spot 10 like that <laughs> because it speaks to giving a shit about yes. the whole work. And I love that. Yep. And it, it goes back to that attention to detail. And so the fact that they did that here, that might be the most excited I've ever been for the second to last <laughs> song on an album for the, just from the placement of it to just be like, Man, I can't believe they put that song here. It's usually it's yeah. a place of disappointment or a place of like, oh, I hope the last song is really going to be good. Then if this is the second to last song, and here it's like, holy shit, this might be the best second to last song I've ever heard on an album. <laughs> All right, well, let's see whether track eleven lives up to it. Then, uh, so that is the final track. Don't do it. I feel 
So we get the raining blood start. Yep. Right. Uh, then we get a little bit of Good Morning Black Friday from Megadeth off of Peace Cells. Um, but there's actually another song from Megadeth that it really reminds me of here, and it's a song called When, which is the final song on uh, the 2001 album, The World Needs a Hero. And um, what I like, and he mentioned this in one of his interviews, David uh, Sanchez did in one of his interviews about um, taking influence i'm going to see if i can find it real quick uh i don't want to disrupt the flow but he talked about the different influences that they pull into their songs and how they've used uh a lot of different things but just made them like more sinister here it is he said it's fun to take influence uh let's see the same kind of mentality struck a chord with us when we were recording uh it's good for bands to take chances because some of that uh, of the stuff that that's what makes them unique we're massively influenced by 70s progressive bands, funk, jazz, classical, bluegrass, old country, punk rock, 80s, new wave, and flamenco guitar. A lot of that stuff works our way, its way into our music. And then he says, um, you know, if you listen to a lot of great funk bands from the 70s, a lot of funk is very, very heavy. It's just not evil. Yep. And they're using a lot of major notes, but there's not a lot of distortion on the guitars, and the production's not super heavy, but what a lot of that music is is very heavy. It's just not evil. So we take inspiration and we make that 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 makes those things sort of heavy and funky and dirty, but we choose to make it way more sinister in our note choice. And that to me was one of the most elegant explanations of why something can be heavy without necessarily being like metal. Mm. Um and to to go back here, like I think it 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 perfectly, you know, fits what they're doing here because there's a sinisterness to this song that just kind of permeates it. Well, you know? uh, and especially in this opening, it's a Black Sabbath opening. Yes. You know, you can make, yes, I, I, I hear your Megadeth comparisons and stuff, but this to me is a Black Sabbath opening. Uh, you know, I mean, it's this is the longest track on the album, but part of that is because they take two minutes, two whole yep. minutes at the start to do that semi-clean guitar stuff, which is, as you say, got the rolling thunder behind it. And it's, 
it is sinister. It is, you know, you've got not quite tritones, but lots of, uh, you know, minor chord progressions and stuff in there and semitones and what have you. And it is, it's a heavy atmosphere, even though it's not loud. It's not crushing. It's not, you know, this sort of what we traditionally think of as heavy, but it is a heavy atmosphere. And that's, as I say, to me, that brings... How about the Black single Sabbath piano mind. note at like 155? Yes, that one piano hit, and it's perfect. It's like, because... <sighs> Perfect. nothing else sounds like a piano you know sometimes you need Brutal. a piano and only a piano will do and that one single deep bass piano note is just chef's kiss i love it it is chef's kiss man it's freaking great <laughs> and then the and then the riff when it kicks kicks in is crunching and this is another song where you've got clean singing versus the screamy singing and the the words that he like when he's talking about let myself drown mm-hmm. and then like at one point they everything drops out and then he screams drown you know like just again playing with that stuff like there there's a part where he whispers goodbye to you yep. uh there's so many good little like vocal um like switches that he does that they do in the song the the vocal harmonies are great um i wish you'd do the, more actually like yes. the, the clean singing here is good enough that i'm like i actually wish there was a bit more of it on this album not entirely i'm not saying uh, you know that i wish he'd sing like this all the time but it's good enough and it's well composed enough that i actually yeah i wish there was a bit more clean singing on this album because it turns out he can really sing um and i yet, could see them doing more of that in the future like this being maybe, like another yeah. piece that they're adding to the toolbox you know what i mean and the the line you were not there which comes before that whisper that is so emotionally powerful the delivery yeah. and the the melody choice of it it's yeah it's really good this is probably the slowest main riff on the entire album as well um definitely which really fits with you know this feels like a closing track um, I saw one uh, interviewer say, like, you know, were you not tempted to put this in the middle of the album so that it then picked up again afterwards? And even as he was asking it, I was thinking, are you insane? This track couldn't go anywhere else other than the end. It feels like a closer because you've got that 100% slow, agree. plodding, heavy riff, really, like I said, emotionally powerful intense, you know, intense subject as well, which we'll talk about in a second. And then at about five minutes 30, suddenly it picks up and it closes out with that double time thrashing, the drums are hammering, the guitars are wailing, the vocals are screaming. It's a great full circle end to the album, uh, you know, before then going back into the clean guitars to sort of, you know, to finally finish up. But it's, you couldn't put this track anywhere else. It would feel really odd at any other point of the album, I think. A hundred percent. Yeah. I couldn't not possibly agree more with that. Like it is the perfect ending song. You get the call back to the panpsychism song when we go to the acoustic uh, yeah. guitar sort of at the end of the song and which is a song about how everything is connected and everything kind of is full circle and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, this is a song where the majority of the song is about being alone, right? And being and and feeling alone. And then you've got a call back to a song which is about how everything is connected. And this song is about trying to convince someone not to uh you know take their own life and stuff there's just a it's all so good but then again the single piano note to end yes. the song yes <laughs> it does it are again. you fucking kidding me <laughs> like that my note on this 
is that is how you end a fucking album. <laughs> like, boom. That the weight, the fact that this album ends on a piano note and that that is the heaviest piano note you've ever felt in your life is such a testament to like the weight of the entire experience of this album is focused into that one note at the end of it. And <laughs> I talk a lot about like, man, it just, does it make me want to listen to the album again? Immediately. It makes me want to start that journey immediately again. Like, yeah, you said it, man, th- this song could not exist at any other point in the album, but the final song. And as excited as I was about the second to last song in this album, like as far as like last song choices go, this is how you end an album, man. Well, and again, uh, I saw Sanchez say in an interview that he expressly wanted that. He wanted this track to make people want to turn the album over. You know, he, I know you, nobody actually does that anymore, but you know what I mean, metaphorically. Uh, you know, oh, to yeah. go back to the start and uh, and start playing again. It, you know, he specifically wanted people to have that reaction after hearing this final track. Um, and yeah, I'd say it succeeds. So... I mean, let's also talk about the, you know, we've talked about sort of on the nose lyrics. Let's talk about the lyrics of these. It is, they are again, very on the nose, but because of the subject matter, because it is about suicidal ideation, they are so much more powerful uh, than some of the other lyrics on the album. And that perhaps they would be if they were metaphorical. Um, I read that Sanchez said he'd read a statistic and he didn't give a source for this, admittedly, but he read a statistic that since he was a kid, youth suicide in the US had tripled. Uh, you know, and he's not like it's not like he's an old man, and that wasn't that long ago. Uh, and he right. said he was just flabbergasted by that statistic. It really, you know, and and he, like many of us, has been in some dark places himself, but obviously did not uh, take his own life. And so he said he, he specifically wanted to speak up about it. He wanted to try to destigmatize it and tell kids listening to this album, look, you know, don't do it. Things can get better. Uh, you know, I've been there. I know what it's like and it's not worth it. And I think that's a really admirable message to put out on. I mean, what, it's just a great track as well. You know, as we've said, it is just a genuinely great song, but also what a fantastic message to put out. Even if it saves, if it saves just one kid, from taking their own life. You know, he said then it would be worth it. And I concur completely. It's a subject, especially in men. And let's be honest, most metal is still, you know, most of the metal audience is still male. And it is something that men do not talk about enough and does not get talked about by the medical establishment enough. You know, you hear a lot of statistics, but then nobody actually goes on to talk about it. And it is a subject that really needs to be destigmatized because too many young men do take their own lives. God, you know, I've been depressed. I'm not clinically. I don't Same know. here, dude. Yeah. I, Absolutely. You know, I don't have a diagnosis, but I've been depressed in the past when I was a young man and even not that long ago, you know, and f- being in those dark places and it's a crying shame that. Well, and in today's world, dude, where it feels like everything around you is reinforcing the terrible yeah. way that you feel, right? right? And so it's like, but it goes back to what we talked about earlier of like, I think for, a, especially for a lot of, uh, and not just males, but for a lot of kids who grew up in and have this relationship with metal, like they do, mm. 
all of that factors together, right? It's because we don't talk about it enough and we don't, and music becomes this therapy. It becomes this, you know, and so knowing how important music is as a, as a therapeutic coping mechanism for people and stuff like that, to have a band speak to this in, in an album that people who are dealing with this stuff are going to be listening to, right? Because they're listening to metal anyways, and it's their coping mechanism and they're, and they're, uh, I think is, is you're right. It is admirable, like to, to be touching on this stuff because not that we don't, you know, the, the fuck the government lyrics and the, you know, uh, think for yourself lyrics and the rebellion kind of stuff like all that, but also to, to make sure let's not forget that music is therapy for a lot of us. And so having a song that speaks directly to someone who's going through something really difficult right now, I think is, um, it's powerful. Yeah. It is. It's a really, you know, if you, like I say, it is a, just a great track by itself. But if you actually sit down and read these lyrics, they are powerful lyrics and they're delivered powerfully as well. Um, and I'm sure it's no coincidence that this is the track where he decides to do a lot of clean singing. Um, yep. And yeah, it, it really resonates and really comes across. So uh, yeah, absolutely full marks for that. And that's the album. Um, like I said, I'm not quite ready to make it my album of the year like you are but it is you know like i said it's a real grower and i did enjoy it more the more i listened to it um and yeah as much as anything i just really appreciate an album that does not sag anywhere really because there are too few of those around for sure yeah i mean an album that gives me something to dig into every time i listen to it is rare and this is one of those albums for me. And so I, I just feel like it's really going to be part of my, it's going to be part of that top list for a long time in terms of like examples that I hold up of, of like why I love music and, and how I listen to music and what, uh, what I take out of it. And um, I actually saw these guys. Uh, I was late. I saw them with Megadeth, which is ironic. And I'll tell you why in a minute. In 2016, they had started on the Megadeth uh, dystopia tour. And then they actually had a falling out with uh, the management company that Mustaine's son is the head of and ended up getting kicked off the tour. And so I saw them at the house of blues in Boston in March of 2016, but I only caught like the last four songs of their set because it took us so long to get inside. Mm. Um, to the venue. And I, when I heard them live, I was like, holy shit. And then I went out and bought, um, I think it was conformicide that came out a year later. So I checked out some of their back stuff and then went out and bought conformicide, uh, when it came out in 2017. But I was looking forward to seeing them later that year. Cause I saw Megadeth multiple times on that tour that year. And I was supposed to see them later that year. And it ended up being butcher babies instead of havoc because havoc was no longer mm-hmm. on the tour. And I actually have a bootleg t-shirt that has Havoc's logo still on the shirt. So I have the official <laughs> shirt that I bought when we went into the venue that has Butcher Babies on it. And then I have the Havoc shirt that I bought from the guy in the parking lot that has, um, you know, it had, because uh, it was uh, Megadeth Suicidal Metal Church and it was going to be Havoc. Uh, and it ended up being Megadeth Suicidal Metal Church and Butcher Babies. But that, So I've only seen half of one of their shows live one time. But this is a band that, when we do start going to shows again, I cannot freaking wait to see these guys live. I cannot wait to see a full set live. I can't wait to see them play songs from this album live. 
um i'm just like really in love with this band now yeah it's uh i mean obviously i haven't seen them but i again in interviews with sanchez he you kind of get the impression that he's one of those guys who lives for the road and for playing live you know he talks about how it's not for everyone um yep you know but if you love it, then you love it and there's no substitute for it. Because he was talking in the context of being in lockdown and quarantine, you know, during the pandemic and not being able to get out on the road. And he is clearly itching to get back out there and play live. So I imagine that they would be, yes, a very... And again, you know, they're clearly technically extremely skilled. So I have a feeling that uh, if they match energy with their skill, that they would be, yes, a, a very, very good band live. Well, and I hope, you know, back to your point earlier, like I hope this lineup, this current Sticks incarnation of the yeah, band, yeah. yeah, at least a few albums, you know, because like, I feel like they have, like we know uh, for most bands, not everybody sticks around forever, but there's always that era where you get two or three albums with that lineup right? Who to knows? really in, see what that lineup can do. In 15 years time, people could look back on this as their classic era. You know, the, totally. The, what they call the classic lineup. Yeah. Yep, a hundred percent. I feel like they they really have something special here, and uh, I'm grateful for this album, but also cannot wait to see what they do next. Yeah. All right, uh, let me talk again then. Yes, about the listener poll. So uh, it is almost time for our listener choice episode for this uh, volume. So I'm going to open the poll on Patreon soon. Uh, I'll do that a few days after this episode goes live. And the way it works is if you're a patron, then you get to make your nomination in the thread of that post on Patreon. Um, and then I'll assemble them all and, uh, you know, we'll pick one at random as we always do and talk about it on the, not the next episode, the next episode will make that random choice and then we'll do it on the episode following that. So if you want to be able to nominate an album and you're not yet a patron, you will need to become one. You want to go to patreon.com slash thrashed out, make a pledge, and uh, then you will be able to uh, make that nomination. You'll also be able to uh, take part in the encore episode later, this volume that we'll do. But for now, as I say, I'll open the listener poll up uh, in uh, a few days after this episode goes live. And the reason we do it on Patreon is to ensure that only patrons get to nominate uh so you know if you want to make a nomination and you are a patron you must do it in that thread on patreon we won't accept nominations from anywhere else just to ensure that you know it's all legit uh so that's going to be interesting i'm looking forward to that um before we get to the homework let me also again remind you that patreon of course is at patreon.com slash thrash it out uh, the Facebook group is facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. And you can also go to thrash it out podcast.com for links to, uh, email us and mine and Brian's Twitter. Could I, uh, could I interject one thing before we get to the homework? Of course, go for it. Uh, I just want to say congratulations to you, sir, for your new book, the organized writer that hit shelves this week. Oh, thank you. I'm uh, super excited for people to be able to check that out. And you also recorded the audiobook version of that same book, correct? I did. I did. Yes. So if you like, if you're one of those weird people who likes my voice, uh, <laughs> then, uh, you know, you <laughs> there might, might be a few, <laughs> then you might like the audiobook of that. Yeah, that was, uh, that was intense, man. That was two days, two days of like eight hour recording sessions to, uh, to get that book 
recording. It was the first time I've actually narrated an audiobook um, of any kind. Uh, and uh-huh. it turns out it's a lot more intense than podcasting. Uh, oh, hell yeah. It, There's like a ratio out there of like the amount that you record to the amount of usable audio that you get that I've read. Because I also have thought about doing um, the audiobook thing before, but like was was discouraged by the amount of uh, – by what I read about uh, about what you it, end up uh, it, having to put in together. Well, I think it wasn't too bad for us. And that's partly because, of course, I was narrating my own words. So I, I was already familiar right. with the book. But yeah, I think it was about 70%. You know, even then it was still only about 70%. Yeah. That's really good. Um, and yeah, as I say, that was kind of intense. But yes, thank you. It's uh, It seems to be doing pretty well. We hit number one in the, um, not Amazon overall, but in the books about books and publishing uh section of amazon we were number one for quite a while on friday actually you know for like quite some time um which was not in fact we were number one and number six number one was the kindle version and number six was the audiobook at one point in well and i feel like chart. it's it's perfect timing man because here it is beginning of october people can pick that book up you have a whole month to to digest it before nanorimo begins oh that's so, true which i think it requires NaNoWriMo certainly helps instill within you this uh, ability to to get into a routine of writing if you're going to hit those types of word counts. And I think your book is does I mean it is a masterful blueprint of putting some structure to your writing life and really being able to uh, be consistently productive, which is what it takes to be a professional writer. Oh, bless you, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Uh, anyway, all right, so let's get on to the homework then. So uh, for the homework for next episode, we are going to do another relatively new band. Uh, as I've mentioned before, I'm on a bit of a quest this volume to sort of not just always pick, you know, gold oldies. <laughs> um, and so we are going to do an album called Nija from this year, 2020, by Orbit Culture, who are a Swedish death groove band. Wow. A long-time listener of the show and member of our Facebook group, Daniel Luff, recommended an EP of theirs last year on the forum. And I really liked it. Like, really liked it. So it, I just sort of added them to my list. Uh, and then they dropped this album the earlier this year, not that long ago. Um, and it's a real step up because I'd listened to the previous album, which wasn't as good as the EP. But this new album is a real step up from the last one. So I thought, yeah, okay, let's do that then. And I will admit right now, I've only listened to the album a few times myself, but I have liked it. So, you know, but I haven't given it that kind of in-depth listen uh, that I would, obviously, an album that's older and that I'm more familiar with. So it's going to be interesting, sort of unexplored territory for both of us. But I do think it's an album worthy of talking about. I'm excited because I have absolutely no frame of reference for this band at all. So this will be a completely new listening adventure for me. Fantastic. All right. And that is it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Keith Rashin. Take care. again patreon as i say is at patreon.com slash thrash it out i'll do that again 